This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Hope you're having a great Tuesday morning as you make your uh, wonderful commute to life. You sound winded. I'm a little winded. feel like I've been running around like a man <laughs> with his head cut off. Hey, um, by the way, uh, tomorrow is the big day. Yes. I'm going under the cauterizing knife to get rid of my gallbladder. And uh, mm-hmm. it's happening. And you know, it's funny. I don't know that I should be that excited. And I don't even know that I should be talking about it. I don't want to jinx anything. You know, I can't believe the gall... For you to bring that up. I know. <laughs> Gallbladder surgery. But I am making my I, – I think it's a weird request, but um, I'm going to ask my doctor to, to give me the gallbladder. When I leave, I want to be able to take it with me. I'm going to clean it out, tan it up a bit, and then I'm going to make it into a little coin pouch. And then you can give it to Don Shaline for his mm-hmm. 15th anniversary here exactly. at BYU Radio. Don't you think that would be great? Oh, yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I think that is because there's silver, gold, but there's also gallbladder for yeah. the 15-year mark. Then there's the 15-year, I think, is the bile anniversary. Yeah. So that's where you give <laughs> a little gallbladder activity. Uh, no, it's exciting. So, um, you know, I'll be out the rest of the week, but it, the show will be in the capable hands of... Huh. haven't thought that part through. <laughs> just kidding. Boo! Boo, just kidding. I'm just kidding. It'll be in the hands... Of Jeffrey Simpson and uh, Terry South. That is, of course, if, uh, you know, if Jeff's child and wife are healthy and happy and there's no problems there, if Terry is done, you know, noodling his son. What? What? (laughs) Pool noodle. Yeah. Clean that up. That's cool. Um, We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about small businesses, and I'm a small business owner, and cybersecurity. What am I supposed to do with cybersecurity? I mean, I'm not – I don't have a lot of high-tech people at my company, so uh, I don't even have a tech officer. So am I in danger? Yeah. And then the other side is the public. We deal with small businesses – all the Probably time. Probably maybe more than we do deal with the, yeah. the large super companies that get hacked. And so, You probably work for a small company right? statistically, right? A, a business it could be a 1,000 employees maybe. That would be considered a middle, mid-level business. Mm-hmm. So are, is your company doing what they should be doing? We'll be talking about the three Bs of cybersecurity for small businesses with a professor of uh, – like a business professor. So – Important lessons for us all because it's the problems are just as uh, just as big for the small business. In fact, probably bigger so because you probably don't have all the other advancements of high tech that uh, your the bigger companies make. So we'll get into that fun topic. Plus, of course, a review of some of the the headlines, the latest headlines. Apparently, Sean Spicer may be uh, taking on a new position. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. I know. Which is weird because it makes no sense. Did you see the Steve Bannon, the reported no. Steve Bannon text? No. Oh, no. So this is all happening yesterday. Sean Spicer may be working on selecting his replacement. Yeah. He might be taking a role in the communications department, not necessarily up in front of the cameras anymore. But it would be like – it would be a promotion. 
Yeah. Supposedly. But, you know, everyone wants to be in front of the camera, but right. he'd be overseeing the entire right. communication strategy. And so the question – and then so a reporter from The Atlantic sent a text to Steve Bannon saying, hey, why aren't there more on-camera interviews? Because yesterday they held a White House press conference, no cameras, no audio. Okay, yeah, yeah. So there's so no an interview without really any – Way to present it <laughs> other than in a newspaper. And uh, so Bannon responded – the reason there aren't more on-camera interviews is because Sean Spicer is fat. No way. That's what it said. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. And then there was no response when they texted again to follow up on, really? Is that what you want to say? He just left it at that and moved on. Oh, yeah. That's rude. <laughs> that's, it's just. He gained weight. That's, uh... that's why there's no more on-camera interviews. Wow. <laughs> well, Oh, well, that makes sense. That's crazy. Yeah. And he's a special assistant to the president. Yeah. And a media mogul. A few months ago, Time Magazine put him on the cover saying he's the president, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon. Also known as Lord Vader. Could be. Is it? <sighs> or the Grim Reaper. Yeah, the Grim Reaper. That was on Saturday Night Live, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. So th- that kind of uh, is the atmosphere okay. around this decision sure. that they're trying to make on who's going to communicate to the nation. The funny thing about it is for many presidents, the communication officer would be like a critical part of your administration. But in this case, President Trump seems to be his own communication right. officer. And the communication department is chasing to figure out yeah. what he's actually going to say. And as and Sean Spicer said it, that nobody is a better communicator for the president than the president. Which is obvious because he's not talking to you guys. It's also a hard thing. They, they're having a hard time filling the positions. Wrong. Because it used to be everybody in the media and anybody in the communications field would just run to this job because it it's huge for your future. Right. But apparently, you know, now it's the this, plague. This comes wrong. with some uh, baggage. <laughs> You're wrong. You keep hearing – I keep hearing Donald. That's crazy. It's like a weird echo of Donald. Oh. Anyway, we'll get into all that fun talk. Uh, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Both candidates in the race to represent Georgia's 6th Congressional District reportedly barred news outlets from campaign events the night before the special election runoff, which is today. Staffers for Republican candidate Karen Handel reportedly blocked the left-leaning outlet Think Progress from an event. According to reports from that publication, the reporters were were asked, they said they've had no problems. They've been to events over the last few weeks, no, no problems whatsoever, but yesterday they were blocked. Meanwhile, staffers for the Democratic candidate John Ossoff reportedly blocked the right-leaning outlet Free Beacon from attending an event from that same evening. Free Beacon reporters, they announced this on Twitter. Uh, that one was likely because they keep pointing out that John Ossoff doesn't live in the district he's trying to represent. Yeah, that's a problem. That's kind of something they... He doesn't want to focus on, obviously. Uh, the hotly contested election takes place today. Georgia 6 will be decided uh, with the also the South Carolina 5th Congressional District will be decided today also. That one's not getting a lot of attention, but uh, yeah. That, uh, the uh, what the South Carolina District is for the Milk Mulvaney, who left to be the budget director for Trump. Mm. Whereas oh, yeah. the one in Georgia is for Price, who is now the... Uh, HHS, Health yeah. Health and Human Services guy. So, in Georgia, the sixth uh, House election record, $50 million has been spent by both candidates. Wow. Which, you know, the entire Atlanta metro area, sorry, you've been blasted with ads for the last six so months. So, it's $100 million. No, no, 50 combined between oh, Republicans. Oh, but like, it's a record. Okay, it's yeah, a record for a any House election ever. Uh, and that the polls in that race show it's too close to call. It's like 1% separate both. I mean, think about every other... 
every other congressional seat in the country was probably a million dollar budget right. between two candidates. John Ossoff has $23 million have been donated to his campaign. The record before was uh, Paul Ryan last last cycle with $20 million, I believe. Wow. So just crazy amount of money. All of it from out of state, of course, because this is taking on a national attention mm-hmm. more than just a local. In other news, the Navy on, sun- on uh, Sunday, we talked about it yesterday a little bit, revealed the details of the final moments of the seven sailors who died aboard the destroyer after it collided with a container ship near Japan ripping open the warship and sending seawater gushing into rooms where men lay asleep. Mm. The Philippine-flagged ACX crystal plowed into the far smaller USS Fitzgerald around 2.20 a.m. Saturday, opening the hold of the sea and rapidly flooding three large compartments and included two berthing areas for 116 crew members. The ship's captain was trapped inside his cabin, which was hit directly. It was on the side of the ship that the container ship crashed into. He was airlifted to a naval hospital. 300 brave sailors under his command quickly sprang into action to contain the flooding and save the boat from ending up on the bottom of the ocean. They then navigated the damaged ship back to port uh, with only a magnetic compass and backup equipment to guide the ship. Japanese authorities are investigating uh, endangerment of traffic caused by professional negligence. I believe, on the on the part of the, the container, container ship. ship yeah. Japanese media also report that the ACX crystal made a, quote, sharp turn shortly before the pre-dawn crash. And it was about an hour, so they didn't even report the crash, I think, until an hour later. Until later. When they so that, that makes no sense either. They, like, I mean, I know there's chaos on the ship. And you but, see, the well, CBS last night had a, a graphic showing the track yeah. of the container ship. And it, like, just all of a sudden made a turn, and it crashed into the side of the the Fitzgerald, and then it made a quick little loop and, like, headed back to where it came from. That is so... With no radio signal like, explaining well, what so happened. Well, so I assume they'll find out what happened, but they said it could take, like, a year. Yeah. Of course. Because everything takes forever. The Coast Guard's going to be investigating. Mm-hmm. The Navy investigates. The Philippine Navy, I guess, investigates. Unbelievable. It's crazy. Uh, The 2016 election saw American voter rolls swell to more than 200 million registered voters for the first time ever, and about 198 million of those people had their voter data exposed by a Republican National Committee contractor called Deep Roots Analytics. The 25 terabytes of information were stored on an Amazon Cloud account that could be accessed and in some cases downloaded without a login. The data set included voters' names, dates of, dates of birth, home addresses, phone numbers, and voter registration detail, as well as data described as algorithm, algorithm predicted, which would be voter ethnicities and religions. Mm. Wow. All across, it sat, it sat on this exposed server for two hours. Yeah. If you knew how to access it, which apparently meant you click on a link, it opens because there's no login. It's right there. You could just download all the information. Get it while it's hot. So... Man alive. More, more, more problems for the, the election cycle where information is just available. Yeah. And finally, this is big news. I'm going to read what? this just the way it's written. Jay-Z, mm-hmm. the rapper, who is used to go by the name – he used to go by the name Jay-Z, has changed his name once again. Entertainment Weekly has confirmed the rapper, whose real name is Sean Carter, will now go by Jay-Z. The move comes ahead of the release of his first new album in four years and the recent birth of Twins. Hold it. So, so Jay-Z, he, who used to go by Jay-Z, will now go by Jay-Z. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So before it was capital J-A-Y yeah. space capital Z. Right. Then he changed it to capital J, lowercase a, lowercase y, hyphen 
capital Z. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now it's capital J, capital A, capital Y, hyphen, capital Z. So J. Just big news. Z. Yeah, he's screaming. No, it's J. All, it's all capitals. Jay-Z! There you go. That's his new name. It's a hard name to say. I think if you worry about your name that much um, and you're changing it that much, yeah. maybe you're focused on the wrong thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I read the story. It goes, Jay-Z, who used to go by Jay-Z, has now changed his name to Jay-Z. I'm like, what? Oh, okay. So what's your name? Capitalization. Matt, what? what's your rapper name? Uh, Matt Town Dizzle. Matt Town Dizzle. Mm-hmm. It's too long. The notorious M A T, but it's it's M. I spell it M A M small M capital A small T hyphen backslash town T O W N with intermittent capital small letters and then Dizzle Dizzle D with three Z's E L not L E. I like Terry's better. What's that? What's Terry's? The notorious M A T T. Ooh, How notorious. about yeah. except notorious might be harder for people to spell. How about yeah. empty tizzle? Empty, like it's empty, like there's no tizzle em- in it. No, empty tizzle. Mm. Mine would be J Fed. Remember K Fed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine would just be J Fed. You know what's funny about all of these names, including Jay Z's? My mom still doesn't know who he is. So. But, but but after my in-depth explanation, she'll know how to spell it. <laughs> I doubt it. I can't even remember what the real change was. Hey, I don't know if you guys have heard this. Um, Speaking of hot, it's uh, pretty hot in the West. We talked about it yesterday. It's still hot. Yes. More and more flights are being canceled. In Phoenix. Yeah, 118 degrees. Apparently, some planes can't take off and land at 118 degrees. You need longer runway. Yeah. The air, the physics change about how how you You need more speed. (sighs) Ah. And how on earth do you sell lemonade in that? Your like, kid's dehydrated before his well, lemonade Nobody stands. goes outside. You shouldn't drink lemonade when you're dehydrated anyway. I'm just thinking these poor kids. Where are they going to make their money? And you can't mow lawns. You can't. No, most people just have gravel. What if, you're, what, what if you're a construction worker in Phoenix and you've got to work outside? I mean, that's death. Pray for the uh, midnight shift. Yeah, I bet. I bet they all want to work overnight. Where it's a nice, cool Balm. 95. Balm 95. <laughs> oh, I feel bad for them. And it's, I guess, Vegas is going to get up to 117. Right. So you don't believe in global warming? It should be 98 around here. Yeah. That's the high. I hate it. I, I'm even using my little visors on my my. Uh, you do realize you, you live in a desert. Yeah. This isn't like a, a lush forested no. no, area. We have mountains right next door. Well, you can climb up there. It'll be 20 degrees cooler oh, if it's you want. Oh, up there. But you live down here in the desert part. Yeah. You could have lived in the mountains. Yeah, I could have. You spend most of, the, most of your time in an air-conditioned room or car anyway. No, I'm free- I have to wear a jacket in here. I'm freezing. <laughs> You're sitting here talking about it being almost 100 degrees wearing a jacket. Yeah. <sighs> Good luck to all y'all. Hey, and by the way, I brought treats for everybody, saltine crackers. Oh, Nice. Really? Let's yeah. all eat saltines and try to whistle. Everybody gets two of them. <laughs> two saltines for everybody. Make sure we get in those. That's just to calm your stomach, everybody. Hey, we got a great guest coming up. Scott Shackelford will be next talking about cybersecurity for small businesses. It's uh, It ain't easy, folks. It's hard to run a business anyway, but to keep it cyber safe, stick with us. We'll give you the tools. 
So as you may know, I uh, I have a, a side business where I I coach couples and I teach people how to talk. So I have a lot of people through my business and have people that work for me. And it's a scary thing when I think of cybersecurity and my responsibility to protect my clients' information. It's 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 scary, especially because I hear of all the threats on the show and then. I got to go protect myself in my business. So here to speak with us today about three B's of small business uh, cybersecurity is Dr. Scott Shackelford. He's an associate professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University. And uh, he's here to uh, walk us through an article, The Three B's of Cybersecurity for Small Businesses. Scott, thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. It's. Um, do, do you sense in all of your business experience, are, are small businesses a bigger target, small and medium-sized biz- businesses, a bigger target for cybersecurity issues, or is it just we, we're less prepared? I think they're an underappreciated target. A lot of the attention you know, goes to the big hacks, whether it's Target or the Office of Personal Management, whatever the case may be. But we oftentimes don't hear about what's happening with the store down the street. And oftentimes, those are pretty significant breaches that are happening as well. Maybe they're not at the scale. Maybe there's not tens of millions of people impacted. Uh, But frankly, it's a big deal to those companies. It's been a big deal to their customers. After all, just one fraudulent wire transfer could make the difference between a company staying in business and going out of business. It's so true. And and people trusting you long term. I mean, if all of a sudden you've got to send out an email to everybody that does business with you that you've been hacked, holy cow, the PR problems and just the fact that you don't necessarily know what you're doing per se. Is it um, and it's not this isn't even really about website management, is it? No, no, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, in fact, it's, that's part of the problem, right, is that it can just be so confusing if you're a small business to know where do you put that next dollar of investment or that next hour of time, right? Um, that's why we tried to kind of lay out some bare bones, some basic ideas in this article to help organize uh, thoughts, if nothing else, and organize strategy for these small businesses because it's a really complex threat landscape out mm. there to manage. Totally. Mm-hmm. Give, us, give us an example of – uh, I mean, a small business, a small to medium-sized business could still be a, a medium-sized business could be 1,200 employees or something, right? Um, talk about right. talk about uh, what some examples of smaller to medium-sized businesses that have been hacked and are having cybersecurity issues. Yeah, well, one area that's been in the news a lot lately, maybe you or your listeners have heard about it, is the healthcare context, right? Yeah. So whether it's kind of smaller clinics or whether it's kind of regional insurance companies, we had a couple of breaches, for example, here in Indiana with some regional insurance companies that wound up losing all of their employees' information, but also all of their patients' information as well in a breach just a few months back. Um, so unfortunately, this is something that's happening with a fair amount of regularity. One of the kind of new tools that's gotten a lot of attention is this whole ransomware uh, issue, right? Yeah. Which we saw just a couple, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago now with this uh, WannaCry uh, campaign that went around the world. But again, the, the good news is even though this stuff is scary, there's some really basic steps that companies can take to help mitigate this risk. Yeah, you don't have to. Mm. You don't have to take the hit. Uh, the ransomware scare right. was where uh, somehow they would get hacked, uh, the the hackers would get information about the company and then basically hold it for ransom and the company would have to pay money in order to get their information back. That's right. That's right. It's basically kind of like taking up all your files, putting them in a 
uh, kind of a special desk drawer and locking them and saying, if you want to get the key to unlock those files, you got to pay us. Uh, and basically, you have to pay in Bitcoin, which is this you know virtual currency that makes it really hard to trace, which is why cyber criminals like it so much. Wow. I mean, it's a scary, scary thing. Before we get to some of your solutions, um, I, I guess part of this is it's 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 knowledge that we may not have in the small business level of of what's mm-hmm. going on. I know phishing's a big issue. Talk about phishing and and how that could that that's huge. That that's a, that's probably an, a, a pretty common way that uh, hackers are getting in. Yeah, it's a common and really fast growing way. So this is basically the idea that. You know, it, it's not somebody trying to brute force their way into your systems. It's just an email coming in that maybe looks like it's coming from one of your colleagues or your boss, um, and it's requesting you to do something, you know, that doesn't look that uh, threatening, maybe opening a link to a spreadsheet. Hey, look at this before our meeting on Monday morning. If it's 4.30 on a Friday afternoon, maybe your guards aren't up and you might click on that, right? And it doesn't take very much for to have your systems compromised. And unfortunately, it's the case that not only do we need our managers and our leaders kind of on board and knowledgeable about how easy it is to get hacked in this way, but also all the people helping them. So all the support staff need to be aware of this as well. That's one of the main ways that companies are actually breached is when the administrative staff uh, clicks on these links. They tr- they think they're helping, uh, obviously, but they wind up actually hurting. Oh. And and then all of a sudden you you get one of these emails, you send the password to the server or whatever out, and the next thing you know, you're either having ransom issues and they're holding you hostage or um, you've, you've been breached and your data's all gone. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. In fact, you know, we, we heard a lot about the, the DNC breach yeah. uh, this last year. And, you know, it was it was John Podesta's email that was breached, but John actually wasn't the one that kind of clicked on uh, the link to reset his Gmail password. It was one of his aides that said, hey, John, you really got to do this. It looks like a legit request from Google to reset your password. Oh. So, again, that just goes to show that we, we got to have a much higher level of cybersecurity awareness here. It's kind of basic cyber hygiene. Well, and you know, when the whole Hillary Clinton server in the – in the base or the basement of her house or whatever, when that was all going down, I had a lot of sympathy for her because, I mean, I'm a small business owner and I'm not running for president. She probably should have had a lot better security. But I'm thinking, you know, you just make what with what's do what you can. You don't want to spend a ton of money. You don't want to have a server room. You don't know exactly what you're doing and you trust in people to do it for you. Are there people out there for small business uh, and businesses that that they can afford, or is this kind of is this something that you know it, you have to have a certain threshold of income and revenue in order to pay for such security? Yeah, well, I mean, the good news is is there's some really basic steps that we all can take, small businesses and medium sized businesses, to do a much better job at mitigating the risk, right? So, for ransomware, for example, the easiest thing to do is just to keep backups of all of your data both on-site but also up in the cloud. So, you know, worst case, maybe you wind up losing a day or so of Mm. your data if you are hit by ransomware. You don't have to pay the Bitcoin as a result of that, right? Yeah. Um, So we just have to be kind of be aware of some of those basic basic approaches. Also, you can think about, and this is something that more both companies and even some local governments are doing. They're investing in cyber risk insurance. 
policies. Now, these things aren't perfect, and you really have to look closely at the way they're written because sometimes, just like with other insurance policies, you think they cover things that maybe they don't wind up covering. But this can make the difference, again, between a small business being out the $300,000 fraudulent wire transfer or the $500 deductible, right? (laughs) These policies have kept you know, small businesses in business. Yeah. Something to take a look at. Yeah. And I I guess you make the decision based on what's your risk threshold. Like, I mean, do you have a lot of data that could be taken? Uh, Do people sue? So Mm -hmm. if my data was breached at a hospital or a clinic, do you see very many of uh, the patients suing the companies for the breach? Is anyone doing that? Yeah, certainly if they're the victims of identity theft, um, if they have to spend a lot of their own money to mitigate uh, whatever has happened as a result of this breach, you know, so maybe uh, it's, it's involved, you know, a couple of years of clearing things up with, uh, you know, different credit monitoring services and credit cards and all of that jazz. So, I mean, if people are, are hurt, then, yeah, they do wind up suing. There's been a couple of class actions. Uh, and some other interesting lawsuits recently as well. We've had the first kind of product liability uh, lawsuit. Typically, this is kind of a liability-free zone. When we talk about cybersecurity, we haven't really held uh, or held software companies uh, responsible, for example, for bugs in their in their software very often. But we're starting to see that maybe potentially start to change. So it's something that a lot of companies are paying attention to because this could help to establish, at least over the kind of the medium term, more of a standard of cybersecurity care. So at least businesses would know what's expected in that case. Mm, mm. You, um, in all of your experience, you've you've now put together uh, some tools, just some basic rules for small businesses. Uh, be aware, be organized, be proactive. Talk to us about being aware. I know you've already mentioned a few things about how we can be more aware. But who needs to who do we need to make sure are aware when it comes to small businesses? Who in the business? Absolutely. I mean, it's a bit easier for small businesses because I can just take the easy cop out and say, well, really, all of us, you know, yeah, be aware, everyone. Ideally, right? right. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's easier said than done, of course. And even the companies that do the cybersecurity awareness training, that really runs the gambit in terms of quality because you know what these trainings are like. Right. I mean, yeah. sometimes they're half an hour. You're clicking through. You're not really paying attention. Um, so it, it, it is worthwhile to look at what options are out there with regards to some basic training. Even Nova uh, actually has some decent cybersecurity training for phishing, for example. And just going through that with some of your employees actually could be pretty beneficial. Um, and they, they turn it into more of a game. So when you can make it more engaging, more entertaining, that can help a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it really has to be, if nothing else, and at least the manager's, those that have access and the ability to make important decisions, such as authorizing wire transfers, and any of their kind of immediate subordinates. I think it's really important kind of when in doubt to really instill that lesson. Just don't click, double check. At the end of the day, pick up the phone. Uh, if it looks like it's something even remotely uh, unexpected, uh, that's it's always good to double check. So I think just kind of instilling that extra level of due diligence is the best idea. And frankly, that's pretty cheap to do. Yeah. It's really just a uh, little time consuming. That's all. Well, and instead of being annoyed with the people constantly checking with you, you should be praising them for constantly that's checking. Exactly right. That's a, and, and, and some companies are doing that, right? So they're giving incentives and prizes, you know, for employees that take, you know, cyber hygiene seriously. And then when they do stuff like that, you can have a little reward scheme set up uh, to reward those companies, show that it's something that you take seriously. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you get a $50 bonus for finding a phishing attack or whatever. How cool would that be? Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because maybe you're preventing, you know, thousands of dollars of breaches there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have, a, I have a, a friend that has a company where their, their job is they go in and hack – uh, mm-hmm. Companies mm-hmm. hire them to go in and try to attack their weaknesses, um, and then what they do too is they they then um, monitor the organization, and um, they they can see who's who's doing more riskier behavior, who's got more mm-hmm. emails coming in, who's doing all these things, and then they specifically target training for each employee based on their use of mm-hmm. the internet, and it's a pretty it's a pretty advanced program, and I, I sit and I think, mm-hmm. boy, eventually. But again, like you're saying, if we can get on Nova and go take a fishing class um, for relatively cheap, uh, then all of a sudden, this is there's really no excuses except just people didn't know they weren't aware. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, but but you're correct. If you can afford it, having a company like that do a penetration test, which is what those are called, and see where the weak points are in your networks. And also where the weak points are in your personnel, yeah. that can make a really big difference. So, I mean, it's it's one of those things we, you know, we mitigate the risk of physical break-ins by taking all of these precautions, security cameras, security systems, all that stuff, and making some of those more proactive investments can make a, a really big difference is, for warding off these kinds of breaches. Yeah. Do you, um, I mean, because the other thing that happens is is how fast the internet changes and how our attack today will be completely different tomorrow um, how do you stay on the cutting edge of and, and stay aware of the cyber attacks as they're coming? Mm-hmm. Not not well, on the – we were always kind of on the bleeding edge mm-hmm. instead of the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And this, this, frankly, is some of the good news about being a small and medium-sized business, right? Because if you were a big multinational company with tremendously valuable intellectual property, you really do have to be worried – about the most sophisticated criminal organizations, maybe even nation states trying to breach your system. But if you are a mom and pop shop or a relatively small operation, you might not be uh, uh, the target in the same way as these, as these bigger companies are. And as a result, you can kind of uh, tweak how you're approaching this problem a bit differently. So you don't have to necessarily be worried about the most sophisticated types of breaches. What you can do is do what, for example, Australia has done, right? The government of Australia has been able to decrease the incidence of cyber attacks penetrating their networks by 90% by just doing three things, right? So they're minimizing local admin privileges. So that just means it's really hard to log in as an administrator to a system. Mm. So small companies can, can make maybe only one or two people give access to that instead of more or less having everybody give access to that. Um, also, uh, automatic updates of both operating systems and the software that runs on them. Uh, so just making it automatic so you don't have to click, you know, remind me tomorrow or whatever. Like oh, that. yeah. And and also having a pre-approved list of programs and websites that you can actually use and navigate to. So don't allow employees just to go wherever they want online, right? Um, if you can focus that down a little bit, 
that can make it a lot harder to go to these sites that are infected with these types of malware. So oh, anyway, that's, that I mean, doesn't have to be rocket science. No, pretty basic, pretty basic stuff. Yeah, pretty awesome. basic stuff, yeah. Scott, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Shackelford. He is a, an associate professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, where he teaches cybersecurity law and policy, sustainability, and international business law. We'll continue the three B's of cybersecurity for small businesses when we come back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us, Dr. Scott J. Shackelford. He's an associate professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, where he teaches cybersecurity law and policy, sustainability, and international business law. He was also a research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School um, Belfer Program on Science and International Affairs. And uh, he wrote an article, a wonderful article, on the three Bs of cybersecurity for small businesses. First of all, he's taught us to be aware that we need to make sure our, that our employees, that the people that are using our technology at our businesses, on our, on our, in our companies, that they know what they're doing, that they understand and are aware of the digital threats, the different types of threats, and uh, they, they know how to handle it. Also, uh, he's been teaching us a little bit about how to be organized. Scott, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. You bet. This um, part of the being organized uh, kind of came to light in the the WannaCry ransomware attacks um, in, I guess it was in Great Britain and in the in um, mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. But one of the problems mm-hmm. there, in fact, the threat was they believed that the hack because it would impact your computer and then they would take over your computer and it would cost like three hundred dollars per computer to to have the hack fixed. They, they they estimated that it could have gotten up to about $4 billion of potential costs for all the mm-hmm. businesses that mm-hmm. were impacted by it. But this is – the big problem was kind of an organizational issue where – and you mentioned it earlier. A lot of these, these uh, computers weren't automatically updating. So they were running on old software. That's right. That's right. Um, and this kind of gets to the confusing world of what we sometimes hear as cyber weapons. Because really, cyber weapons are just, you know, flaws and bugs that people don't commonly know about in really common operating systems like Microsoft Windows, which was used in this case, right? Yeah. So that's why there's so much tension right now between companies like Microsoft and uh, the U.S. government, because obviously these companies want the government to disclose all of these bugs so they can be fixed. But if you're a government, you also see those as really valuable tools. Um, so there, there's been this balancing act for a little while as a result of that. Oh, boy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, to think that some of our our most important uh, facilities are being run on old versions of Microsoft, it just oh, seems scary. It, it's, it's pretty bad. We actually have a Navy warship still running Windows XP. <sighs> uh, and Windows XP hasn't actually been updated since 2014. We were actually paying Microsoft just to develop patches for Windows XP just for our military instead of actually making the investment to go ahead and make the switch Holy to a secure operating system. Yeah. So that's less than ideal. No, totally. <laughs> well, especially when we just hear of a Navy ship colliding with a tanker. I'm sure it had nothing to do with that. But 
boy. I mean, that's weapon right. systems. That's yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah, scary. That's right. But also being organized, um, it seems like one of the most difficult things just for me as an individual is to keep all my passwords straight. I'm assuming oh, yeah. being organized means businesses have to keep their passwords changed and tight. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. And there's there's some programs that, that you can uh, use to help make that a little bit easier so that everyone's not just writing their passwords on the yellow sticky notes <laughs> and sticking them to their monitor. So anybody passing by can, you know, happen to see uh, see what that is. I see that occasionally, actually, even here in town, which is less than ideal, especially if it's a customer. that yeah. <laughs> can kind of casually glance over and see that. So, you know, there's services like LastPass, for example, uh, that you can sign up for, and that uh, creates incredibly hard to guess passwords for all of your different systems and as a result you only have to then remember the one password to get into that system now of course that's kind of putting all your eggs in one basket as well because if that system is ever breached uh which of course you know that can happen sure uh then you're you can kind of be out of luck right but that that kind of thing can help and that that's at least it that's better i would say than reusing for example the same password if you're doing that now on multiple different platforms mm. um that that can that can cause a whole world of hurt if one of those gets out because that's the easiest thing to do oh <laughs> totally to reuse those for different uh well, and yeah, just for ease of use, it's yeah. I I bet there's so many crazy mistakes being made on passwords because you know if you're even if you're a a business with a hundred people, I don't know you you're you're oh, still yeah. probably not even aware of you know the the problems that that are even possible with your passwords yep. and and talk okay. about that because one of the things that um. Like I, I've been – I've had clients like Lockheed Martin and Turner Broadcasting, big kind of media companies or big uh, mm-hmm. uh, defense firms. Also, I've worked with Intel, Hewlett-Packard. And when you walk into these facilities, they won't even let you bring thumb drives, CD drives right. and or even mm-hmm. your own laptop. Mm-hmm. And so talk about allowing your employees to plug in anything into your mm-hmm. computer. That's right. Yeah. And a, a lot of small businesses in particular still haven't taken the time because, you know, frankly, time is tight uh, to develop what's called bring your own device or BYOD policies. Right. So this is allowing your employees to bring their smartphones, bring their various devices to work and connecting, for example, to your work's Wi-Fi network. All right. And when, when that happens, whatever happens to be on those devices, it's not that difficult for it to make the jump and infect other systems, right? Mm. So, you know, that's why if, if nothing else, if you still want to allow employees to do that, and plenty of businesses do, it's important at least to have a policy about, all right, if that's the case, then what safeguards can we as the business, we as the employer put into place to help make that phone, make that device, you know, more secure, including if that winds up getting lost and it has, you know, business data on it, having the ability to remotely wipe it. Right. So that's not just you know out there in the wild, as yeah. it's called. Um, so just doing some basic stuff like that and including uh, requiring stuff like, uh, you know, two factor authentication to sign in to various systems. That could that could really, really help make it a lot more difficult uh, for uh, both outsiders and potentially even um, some insiders as well to gain access to some of these systems that they shouldn't. Yeah. Is is it like even when you brought up two factor authentication? Uh, you know, Apple's been wanting me to do that for a while, and I tried yeah, it, and yeah. I, then I thought, what a nuisance! But it is it's, a, nuisance. It is yeah. a total nuisance, which is why it's yeah. so much more secure. 
That's right. That's right. And this is why, for what it's worth, Amazon, you know, has been so reticent to use the two-factor on making purchases on its site, right? This yeah. would it dramatically increase security at Amazon, but it takes that couple extra seconds. And when you're a company at the scale of Amazon, that translates, of course, into, you know, millions plus in lost revenue for people that just don't want to take that little bit of extra time. So it is this constant trade-off between, you know, efficiency and security, right? Right. And we, we choose efficiency still most of the time, and we see the results of that. And so you, you've taught us we need to be aware, we need to be organized. We also, the key to this is to be proactive. There really are no excuses in the end. Um, ignorance isn't going to cover you. You're, you're either going to be mm-hmm. – but also, if we're, if we're going to be proactive, what, what would you say would be the key thing we should be you know, proactively focusing on? Yeah, I'd say, if nothing else, the, the most important thing is to have a game plan, right? So I, I wouldn't even think about it in terms of if a breach happens, but when it does happen, how, what's going to go down, right? Who's going to liaise with who? Who's going to be reporting with and working with law enforcement? Um, all that stuff is incredibly important to have. In fact, there's been a lot of litigation that shows that, in fact, that's a fiduciary duty these days. So that's mm. one of the requirements that managers have is to have this game plan in place and to have it regularly updated and communicated so that everybody's on the same page as far as how this is going to work, right? And luckily, there's a lot of tools that can help companies be more proactive in developing these kind of things that can also shine kind of a harsh light if there's any gaps. One of the best ones is called the NIST Framework for Small Businesses. It's the National Institute for Standards and Technology Framework. That's a cybersecurity framework that's been out a couple years now. Uh, it came out from the Obama administration. But there was a new guide that was really user-friendly that was put out for small businesses just within the last year. And it, I think, frankly, it's, it's, it's really, really helpful. It has a lot of common-sense techniques, some of which we've talked about, some of which we haven't. And I think it's a tremendous resource for businesses. And all they have to do is look that up, right? I mean, just go look up that, NIST framework. That's right. NIST framework for small business. That's all they got to do. And just one other quick one I'll mention is that the Better Business Bureau did a cybersecurity survey for small businesses that came out just in the last couple months as well. And that also has, I think, some really interesting findings um, for especially especially kind of the scale of operations that we're talking about in terms of, you know, what, what your peers are doing, what your competitors are doing, and how you can learn from that to help make your system more secure as well. So I'd recommend checking that out too. That's great. Good stuff. Well, Scott, thank you for your great work and uh, time um, and just insights. Again, be aware, be organized, be proactive. Dr. Scott Shackelford, uh, an associate professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. Appreciate his time. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up hour number one of the program. This is the program to help you, you know, lead a healthier, happier, cyber secure life. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, technology, um, cybersecurity aside, the neat thing about technology is we just keep finding more and more amazing discoveries. Apparently, NASA has found a few new planets. So it says, NASA has found new evidence of uh, 219 planets outside of our solar system. Ten of those are 
exoplanet. So everything outside of our solar system is an exoplanet. Mm. Ten of those appear to be similar to the size of Earth and orbit their stars in, in the habitable zone. Okay. Which is not too hot, not too we cold. We call that the H zone. The Goldilocks zone. So just far enough away to develop water, but not far enough that they freeze. It can, if confirmed, this would be adding to the small number of growing lists of Earth-sized planets that occupy our corner of the Milky Way galaxy, supporting the idea that rocky worlds are more common than we once thought. Interesting. So Originally, there's many they, places we could go. So the potential discovery of part of the final catalog of results being released from the first Kepler Space Telescope mission. Kepler has been serving the the bunch of different constellations since 2009 and during that time scientists have found more than 5,000 potential exoplanets in an area of the sky around 3,000 light years away from Earth. Ooh, okay. Today's that's announcement. The, that's the problem. Yeah, it's, yeah, they're out their way. So in other words, 2,335 exoplanets confirmed, 21 of them Earth-sized and in the habitable zone. <gasps> just keeping score. That's great. Great news. So we just have to figure out how to do the three million light years or however many that was. Yeah, once we figure out how to, you know, get that a little faster than the light travel, we'll be yeah. great. I mean, how hard could that be? It's impossible. I mean, serious. All you have but to do there, is come to Utah. Some spec- You'll see how people can there's drive There's some fast. speculation that the human body cannot survive faster than light travel. Oh, Others well, say well, it will. You know what? Yeah, what we'll do see. we know? We, well, we thought we couldn't survive going to the moon. Well, we thought we couldn't survive the sound barrier. Yeah. We thought we couldn't survive. We'll figure it out. You know, gallbladder issues. We'll make it through it. Good. Okay, great news. So more planets that we can't go to. More planets. You can relax. You may have an out. It just you may not be able to get there in time. Ah, good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you get a leg up in life. When we come back next hour, we'll be talking about happiness. Are we really made to be happy? Hmm. Interesting research ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the program, my friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Uh, Hope you're making your Tuesday a great day. Remember, it's uh, yours. Do with it what you want. But uh, be careful. Because there are people around you that will be impacted by your choices, of course. we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about happiness. And um, on the show before, we've, we've actually talked about how anxiety is – we've evolved to have anxiety because it protects us. It, you know, Being a little anxious about life makes it so you're more likely to survive life. So we have an evolutionary psychologist that's going to be joining us to talk about is that why we've evolved this idea of being happy? Does the pursuit of happiness actually somehow keep us moving in life? Is it a motivator? Does it somehow move us and to adapt and to, uh, to actually make life better for ourselves? Interesting concept. Uh, and we'll be getting into the discovery of happiness. Or is it just a pipe dream? Can you – do you actually – should you really be searching for happiness? Is that what you're doing or are you trying to make sure life is – oh, great song. Don't worry. Be happy. Happiness isn't the end goal. Happiness 
happens to give you indication of where you should go because yeah. you're happy. So go that way. You know, but I guess that's the idea. So right? what's interesting though is are you wired to be in a permanent search of happiness? And so even when you find it, you don't even know you've got it because you think happiness is always over the next mountain. Right. And the search for happiness keeps you in this journey of life. Hmm. Pretty interesting little uh, theory. What do you think? I I think there's something to it yeah. because some of the research shows that, like you were just saying, happiness ought not be your end goal. What happens when you achieve whatever is yeah. going to make you happy? Well, and then yeah. you're just you're done. You you call it quits, or well, I mean, you have to go on. Humans so. are horrible at identifying what makes them happy, right? Because we think eating ice cream all day makes us happy till you do it. So then should you're we? Just sick. But you always look back fondly on that. Not not if you've been sick. <laughs> then you're like, I shouldn't have done that. Should we? Reach for happiness, or should we reach for okay? Well, yeah, maybe. And maybe part of that is just recognizing that your pursuit of happiness is a natural instinct, a driver that you have, but it it doesn't need to always consciously drive you. Is there a way we can prove this theory right? Theory today. I don't know. We'll see. Because there's been all these people that are like, you don't seem happy when they talk to me. And I go, I'm yeah. fine. I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I'm neutral. And they go, you can't be neutral. You have to be one or the other. You're either good. Yeah, you're good or bad, happy or not. But I think yours, then, is, yours is different. Because when we have this conversation, I move to the, the not so happy yeah. portion of life. Then it makes you mad. Because they're talking to me about this. And then you noodle whip them. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, maybe they find happiness in ensuring that other people are happy. Oh, look at me. I'm making people happy. I'm the magical man from Happy Land in a gumdrop house at Lollipop Lake. Believe he meant that sarcastically. I think he No, did, yeah. come on. Yeah. No, Homer's a very happy guy. Just throw a donut at him. Happiness, are we really have we really evolved for happiness or is it the constant pursuit of happiness that keeps us driving for more in life. Hmm. Interesting discussion straight ahead on that. Plus, of course, we'll do some empty news. Uh, you know, a lot of information out there that you didn't even know you needed. So on the Matt Townsend Show, we like to bring you MT News. Um, first on the scene is what we like to claim. Fifth on the facts. Facts are overrated if you're there first. So we'll get to all that excitement. Plus, oh boy, we have a new sponsor for the show uh, you've heard of fidget spinners. Well, there's a book out now because, you know, fidget spinners are – they're kind of losing their their power in the market, I guess. I have some numbers on that. Do you? Good. And so we'll get to fidget spinning and the book about fidget spinning. You're not going to want to miss it. Well, I think it's just uh, about – it has a whole bunch of new fads that you can consider when you're done with your fidget spinner. Yeah, like when you're, when you're uh, fidgeted out, but you still need to fidget. Good stuff. It's a great book. We highly endorse it. Uh, That's all straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we need to be worried about? Otto Warmbier, the American student freed from North Korean prison last week, has died, according to his family. Warmbier, 22, was in a coma for the past year following his March March 2016 arrest, allegedly for uh, stealing a poster. The North Korean government claimed he suffered food poisoning and lost consciousness after he was given a sleeping pill. Mm. Warmbier suffered severe neurologic injury, is the uh, what his doctors have concluded. Uh, when Otto returned to Cincinnati late June on uh, 13th, he was unable to speak, unable to see, and a- unable to react to verbal commands, his family said. He looked very uncomfortable, almost anguished. 
Although we could never hear his voice again, within a day, the count, his countenance on his, of, of his face changed. He was at peace. He knew he was home. Is oh, what the wow. family, the, what the family is feeling. He was home, and we believed he could sense that. Uh, the Chinese tour company that arranged his visit to North Korea announced it will stop taking American citizens to the country. So apparently he was visiting China, and then he found out, hey, there's this like a couple-day trip to North Korea. Let's do that. Let's he goes just do there, that. And that's where he got arrested. Oh, man. Boy, that's going to change things. Possibly. We'll see. Megyn Kelly's interview with InfoWars founder Alex Jones on Sunday night tanked in the ratings, even as the program generally received positive reviews from CNN, The New York Times, and the Associated Press. Nielsen data shows that more people ultimately decided to spend their Sunday evening watching the U.S. Open Golf Championship or a rerun of America's Funniest Home Videos than watch her show on NBC. (laughs) Oh, have you seen the one where the guy falls off the roof? Hilarious. It sounds really good. Yeah. It says for some context, Kelly's show, her interview on Sunday, did about the same in the demographic as a 60 Minutes rerun. Wow. Boy, I hope NBC learned because they sure went out on a limb on that one. They did. And And the limb broke. For the most part, people said it was it was a good job. They yeah. put it in the right context, but nobody watched it. Hmm. Tiger Woods is re- receiving help to manage his medications. He says, I'm currently receiving professional help to manage my medications as the way I deal with back pain and a sleep disorder. Woods said in a statement to the AP, Woods was charged with driving under the influence after police in Jupiter, Florida, found him asleep at the wheel of his Mercedes-Benz on 2 a.m. May 29th. Breath test showed no presence of alcohol, but he told officers he had a reaction to several prescription drugs, including uh, Vicodin and Xanax. Oh, boy. That's interesting because when I need to sleep, I'm having a hard time sleeping, I watch golf. <laughs> well, there really? you go. Yeah. That's his, yeah you just think, watch you'd, you'd think he would just put himself to sleep. Yeah. Right. Mm. Now, he was in Jupiter, Florida. But I believe he told the police he thought he was in Los Angeles. Whoa. So, yeah, he was kind of out of it. There's something there. Hey, he knew he was on a coast. Yeah. That's pretty close. He picked a coast. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, stories that we have talked about in the past. Federal Trade Commission will file a lawsuit to block the proposed merger of FanDuel and DraftKings, dealing a major blow to two companies that sought to combine in order to remedy their shared business and regulatory woes. The uh, two other uh, day of sort of fantasy sport websites. You put money down, you pick seven players in a specific sport and see how they do. It's kind of fantasy gambling. is the, that, that, that fuzziness on what exactly it yeah. is is the problem. New York has banned them from operating within their state. And uh, the federal government's looking at them like, are you gambling? Is this fantasy sports? We're not sure. They're in, there's some money issues. So they're trying to combine, but the federal government's saying uh, no because that will give you 90% of that market. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So they're in some financial issues. We'll see where that goes You're forward. in trouble. And finally, if you want to sell uh, fidget spinners, you need to bring bags of cash, apparently. As demand for the whirling contraptions continues to spiral, companies scramble to keep themselves uh, the, the claim that they're being hit with extraordinary practices at the overseas factories that make the fidget spinners. The ball-bearing weights that cause the spinners to move are in short supply, and some charge that Asian manufacturers are hoarding them and asking for much higher prices then uh, it's like roughly 25 cents a piece that they used to charge. So 25 cents a piece, you can make them fairly cheap. Now they're 
up like, you know, whatever the percentage high we'll, we'll see here. 200% yeah. more possibly. Portland, Oregon-based Zing, which sells two kinds of spinners, has been forced to bring bags of cash to some factories in China just to make sure its orders are confirmed. Zing Vice President Josh, uh, the Zing Vice President reports, the factories are asking for cash up front and the price varies daily anywhere from 50% more to 200% more. And he sells to like Target, Walmart, Toys R Us, so big retailers. Oh, boy. He's trying to supply... And they're, they're looking for like 200% more on the uh, materials to build the fidget spinner. That and another thing I saw yesterday, 538, the yeah. website, they had a statistical breakdown with graphs okay. showing you the decline in popularity uh. of the fidget spinner. They feel like peak fidget spinner happened about a month ago. Oh, we peaked out then. We huh? peaked at that point. Now we're on the downward side, and it's just not that big a deal anymore. Oh, boy. That's sad. These is I mean, it? Well, there's a lot of <laughs> really. There's a lot of kids that fidget that well, needed these spinners. They and, probably have them, and but they're fidgeted out. What happens when you're over when you're out fidgeted? And you they're, just they're cheap and they break. You pick up a pen. My three year old was crying. Yeah, she had a pen in her hand, and I held her as she was crying. She was clicking a pen. So now it's just become this joke. Whenever she starts crying, I say, here, take this pen, and I start clicking it, and then she starts laughing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's, so. But now you have a pen clicker, a little cute little three-year-old pen clicker. Clicking a pen is one of the most therapeutic things you could do. Really? It's delightful. It's almost – it's not quite up there with the popping bubble wrap. Okay. But it's close. It's up there. It's one of those things that you're doing like – I if I had a pen in my hand right now I'd be doing it not knowing that I was doing it. You just it's just so natural to you. Yes. See, I know how to spin a pen over my thumb. I know how to spin pens. Not to oh, brag. I, can't do I mean, that. I don't want to be a braggart, but it's I'm it's I'm pretty good at it usually. And um it's it's my fidget spinner. Hmm. But I really like the pen clicking idea except for the fact that little noise like noises like that irritate me. And then I just want to rip that pen out of that little three-year-old's hand and say, don't be doing that. Here's a fidget spinner. Spin this quietly. I'm not going to bring my three-year-old within 10 feet of you. Yeah. That's the thing. That's the thing. Uh, Fidget spinning, you know, they're becoming a thing of the past apparently. But uh, fidgeters are searching for the next big fad. Well, guess what, folks? There's a new book out and that new book is sponsoring the Matt Townsend Show. So we like to play – we like to, you know – promote this book as much as we can. The book contains thousands of time-wasting activities. Can't sit still for two seconds? Looking for an outlet for all your fidgeting and are already tired of your fidget spinner? Well, then you've got to lay your fidgety hands on Fidget Fads, the new book that's jam-packed with flavor of the month time-wasting activities. There's a baby Susan, where you spin a baby on a lazy Susan. The Dignity, where you spin someone's toupee while it's on their head. The Digit Spinner, which is exactly what it sounds like. Ouch! There's even a chapter on how to spin a story by Kellyanne Conway. Alternative facts. Not only does this book contain thousands of fidget spinning activities to choose from, but it also sheds light on various clinical fidget addictions. Fidget spillers can't help spilling things. And you might want to watch out for fidget spitters. Fidget fads. There's absolutely no science that supports this malarkey. Wow. It sounds like a a groundbreaking, finger-breaking, finger-bending book. 
Oh, yeah. I, I don't know that I would try digit spinning. No, that sounded painful. But uh, Toupee spinning sounded interesting. But maybe fidget spitting. Mm, spitting on the fidget. Those are always, those are always very good. Well, uh, it's a great book. It's out, folks. Um, what was the name of it? Fidget Fads. Fidget Fads. Yeah, great. Uh, and a sponsor of the Matt Townsend Show. So make sure you uh, go to a Barnes & Noble near you. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, we're talking about happiness. Are we evolved for happiness? What's going on with the hell happiness uh, search we have in life? This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever heard that uh, anxiety is a common drive that we experience? It encourages us to get to work on time, to go to school, or to meet deadlines. Now, obviously, many people don't think anxiety is that great of a thing, but have we evolved to be anxious? And those that are anxious are more able to get stuff done and, you know, survive and even thrive in many ways in our culture and environment because if so, anxiety then, it's, it's, it's an evolutionary trait. We've evolved because we've had anxiety. And is it now possible uh, to take another maybe driver like happiness? And is happiness an evolutionary driver? So our next guest, uh, Glenn Gare, the chair of psychology and founding director of evolutionary studies at the University of New York, has taken a perspective of evolution and applied it to happiness. Have we evolved to be in pursuit of happiness, always seeking happiness as, as kind of a driver for life? Um, he's here to teach us today. Glenn, thank you so much for your time and your, uh, your insight. Hey, thanks so much for having me on today, Matt. You bet. So talk to us about this. Um, there, there is some pretty interesting insight, and, and it does seem like a lot of us are more and more anxious and, and almost fearful about about life. So that kind of seems like a natural connection to to evolutionary psychology. Talk to us about happiness and evolutionary psychology. Sure. So um, so maybe I can briefly introduce the concept of evolutionary psychology. Yes. It's something that I, I've written about pretty extensively and something that I teach about um, to my students here. And it's basically the idea that to understand the nature of human psychological processes and behavioral patterns and things like emotional states, we need to sort of step back and think about our evolutionary origins, um, which has a lot of implications. First off, that perspective suggests that things that are common in humans, especially across different cultures, may have some kind of adaptive value because mm. they would have, um, that would mean that they would have passed the test of natural selection and that's why they would have become species typical. Um, so for instance, fear of heights is a very common phobia. Fear of snakes is a very common phobia. And our ancestors who were um, not afraid of snakes compared to the ones who were, were probably more likely mm. to get bitten and die. Yeah. For instance. Um, so this is how we can understand that kind of thing from an evolutionary perspective. So taking the evolutionary perspective and looking at the nature of emotions, we can actually gain a lot of great insights into why the emotion system is the way that it is. And we can start asking questions such as, um, is the pursuit of happiness the 
end goal that people sort of should necessarily be moving toward, or is it um, is life and behavior a bit more complex than that? Hmm. No, I like that. That's and and that. I guess. I mean, when we think about it, it makes sense that like fears um, and and even, I guess, that that just anxiety to get something done and to be productive every day. It's it's just a natural driver. And, and do you believe then in the end, happiness also has this evolutionary driving effect? Yeah, well, uh, happiness is definitely one of the basic emotions. Um, and when you look at things that make people happy, and uh, I, I wrote an article in Psychology Today that sort of addresses this, um, and I'm sort of looking at the short list here that, that I was talking about in there. So food makes people happy, right? That yeah. feeling if you just sat down, there's just this big juicy steak that, you know, that's a good feeling. Um, sex makes people happy. I won't elaborate on that, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's clearly there. Yeah. Um, having good friends, going out with friends, having fun, success, success in social contexts, um, getting a job promotion or having some kind of social status improvement in some way. You know, not only are these all things that make us happy, but these are also all things that have clear evolutionary and adaptive value. Um, so we can look at, you know, why does happiness exist? What are the things that make us happy? And how did that relate to our um, what our ancestors would have been doing um, in terms of their emotions. And essentially, if, if you're designing, um, you know, to kind of put it this way, if you think about designing an organism, if you make it so that it's happy when things that help it survive and reproduce happen, you're going to build in a uh, self-propelling system whereby it's going to sort of seek out those things that, um, in approximate sense, make the organism happy, but in an ultimate sense, um, encourage it to engage in behaviors that would facilitate survival and reproduction. Hmm. No, totally. Does um, when, when you look at this, like, because we haven't really, it doesn't seem like we've heard a lot of ha- of of the evolutionary benefits of happiness, the driver of happiness, um, and its connection to an evolutionary kind of foundation. Is this is this a new concept? Um, you know, it hasn't, when you think about the work in evolutionary psychology, I'd say it's really not the front and center stuff in the field, um, as you, as you're sort of implying. So I think there's something to that. Uh, On the other hand, when you think about, or, or when you look at the history of scholarship on the evolution of human emotions, it actually goes way back to Charles Darwin himself. Um, so he wrote, and I believe it was the 1870s, a famous book, because all his books are famous, um, famous book called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, mm. which um, I often point to people as um, perhaps the first legitimate piece of scholarship in the field of evolutionary psychology. Um, and, and he makes a lot of these same arguments way back then, and he does it in a comparative manner as well. So he had the insight that when he, had, when he looked at his dogs, when he looked at his cats, when he looked at other primates, he knew that there was something similar going on across the species. You know, this idea of all of us being sort of um, related in some kind of evolutionary sense, he obviously had that, that insight. So he talks about um, <clears throat> the anger expression in cats, right? Like if you've ever tried to give your cat a bath, you know, you know yeah. it freaks out. It bears its teeth. It makes a lot of um, scary-sounding noises. Its its tail goes up. It, it makes its body bigger as, to the best it can. 
Um, those are all things that are really similar to the anger uh, response in humans and in non-human primates. Um, so he had this insight that, huh, if this is the case, then there's probably something deeply important from an evolutionary perspective about the nature of the human emotions. So fast forward to about the 1960s, and there's a really famous psychologist named Paul Ekman. Um, and Paul Ekman's famous for really doing the first empirical research to sort of document what Darwin was saying. So what he did was he uh, d discovered what he called at the time the six basic emotions or f six basic emotional expressions, including happiness, sadness, disgust, anger, surprise, and fear. And it was a very simple but important study where he took photographs of American college students expressing each of those six emotional states. Hmm. And then he took those pictures and he sent them essentially to New Guinea, where there was a tribe that, to the best of his knowledge, was about the least westernized group of people at the time that they could find. And there was some translator, and they essentially asked people in that group if they could accurately identify these photos. And they were almost at 100%, which is... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so pretty fascinating, speaking to just how basic... Um, the the evolution the emotion system is in, in terms of human evolution and um, so I, I'm assuming if happiness if we've evolved to have the emotion of happiness we've also then evolved to have sadness disgust anger surprise and fear exactly that's exactly right and and, and for me um, that's the big insight that evolutionary psychology has to add to the study and the understanding of of emotions yeah um, it, so it seems like a lot of, um, you know, we want to be happy and people use phrases such as as long as you're happy, do whatever makes you happy and this kind of thing that kind of seeps into our culture. And that I, I'd argue that even seeps into a lot of psychotherapy these days, you know, and it kind of makes sense that it would. But I think when you look at it from this evolutionary perspective, you kind of step back and say, wait a minute, it's really probably very important and very natural for us to actually experience all these basic emotions in our lifetime. Man, and what a what an interesting way to look at it because in today's um, psychology world, we there's a, a movement in positive psychology about the power of, you know, positivity and a lot of research is coming out about happiness, a lot of focus on happiness. But in the end too, uh, I mean, I, I guess we could have a corollary uh, field of psychology for every one of those emotional states. Yeah, that's actually a really uh, intriguing way to, to put it. Um, and, and that kind of relates a little bit to the history of positive psychology. So are you... Yeah. Um, are you aware much about the history yeah. of where it came from? Yeah, Marty Seligman and who is it? Chick sent me high. It was mm -hmm. I was at him. Yeah. So, but but I don't know if my, the the listeners probably aren't as familiar with it. Yeah. So so the, I guess there was a famous speech that Martin Seligman gave at the APA convention. It might be going back about thirty years now. Yeah. He was the incoming president of the APA. So that's the American Psychological Association. I believe it's the world's largest. Um, Society or Association of Behavioral Scientists and Psychologists, and he had a. It was a really provocative and and um, influential speech. He essentially said, "Look, psychologists are famous for studying what's wrong with people. We're famous for studying things like mental disorders and anxiety and post-traumatic stress and all these things. And we put tons of resources and time and education into understanding that stuff." And he said, "That's all well and good, and that's important." He said, "But if you step back." There's tons of things that human beings are doing right 
and there's tons of wonderful things about people. Um, and why don't we use our scientific methods to shed light on those aspects of what it means to be human, the mm. positive aspects of the human experience. And it, it was one of these like insights where you hear it, and you're like, oh my God, he's right. You know, people, people at the time hadn't really thought it all that way. Um, and simply with that, you know, with that speech, it was like enter positive psychology into the, into the fray. And it's now a course that's taught at universities around the country. There are graduate degrees in it. Um, and I find it a very inspiring uh, approach to the human psychology. Um, but the thing, as an evolutionary psychologist, the thing that I've noticed probably most conspicuously from my perspective is that it's, um, it's an area of psychology that is completely divorced from evolutionary psychology. So if you look at the work in positive psychology, they're not, they don't have evolutionary psychologists doing that research. They're right. not taking an evolutionary approach. And, you know, as you can see from what I was talking about earlier, I think the folks there, while I think they're doing great work, I think they're missing something really important. Yeah, no, I, I think, and, and it's interesting too, uh, to to hold up, the value of some of these other emotional conditions or feelings might I – mean, so it's not only just about seeking happiness or avoiding sadness, but there's also dealing with other emotions that that we deal with. I mean I know fear is a huge part of our psychology and uh-huh. even surprise and excitement or anger. I mean th- these are all major issues that we're trying to deal with and yet we – a lot of us jump quickly to just the happiness psychology. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's accurate, and I think that probably a more holistic approach to understanding the human emotion system and psychology in general is to step back and, you know, think about <clears throat> these these other affective or emotional states and, and sort of get a better sense of, do we really want to make these things disappear? Do we really want to make them go down to zero? Or sh- does it make more sense that people, like you're saying, should have a better handle or a better um, sense of control over all these other kinds of emotions that do have some important um, functions for us as well. And I guess the the weird thing about happiness is um, it seems like, and I think some of the research has even proven out, that when you're searching for happiness, it's, it tends to be the least effective way to get it. Um, mm. And it seems yeah. like doing other things might help us is 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 I guess happiness it's kind of an illusion it's isn't it a goal that's changing yeah I think well I think that's a really interesting perspective I mean you can't just wake up one day and be like you know this is gonna be my happy day I'm yeah. going for happy you know right. just, you know that that would just be would be terrific um, but you know evolution doesn't work that way when it when it shaped human psychology you know what made people happy was essentially the acquisition of things that would have been beneficial in a whole bunch of senses. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, any, we can control our emotions to, to some extent. You know, I think there's something to that. Um, but I think the way that the human emotion system evolved, it didn't evolve that we could just automatically, consciously determine our emotion state at any given time. Hmm. And it also seems like, um, if if it is if happiness is a driver for me, it seems like the more I the more close I get to reaching this happy state, um, the more it will either you know adapt it to to keep me driving for even a happier state, right? Or it will um, I don't know. It just, it just seems like it'll constantly be evolving for me, 
and mm-hmm. life and life will be constantly changing for me. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with Dr. Glenn Gare, and he's walking us through an article, Are We Evolved for Happiness? Uh, it's just intriguing to think of um, the psychological side of why we're happy, also why we're anxious, why we have fear, uh, and why we would maybe evolve these traits naturally over the years and time and even natural selection of those that were uh, less fearful maybe are dead. You know, they never made it. And so their genes didn't get handed down. But those of us that are living today, we've picked up a, a super drive maybe for anxiety and, and happy and sad and fearful. Interesting insight, helping you uh, understand you. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This song sounds so happy. Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us today is Dr. Glenn Gare, and he's talking about his article, Are We Evolved for Happiness? Glenn, thank you again for your time and for being with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. When you talk about, I mean, you know, a lot of people just are terrified of the whole idea of evolution. and But evolutionary psychology, I mean, there's just some part of it that just makes so much sense that Certain traits, certain feelings, certain behaviors and emotions um, that seem to work and perpetuate life and keep you alive and and working um, would be handed down. And uh, one of those uh, we've heard about before connected to evolutionary psychology is anxiety. But now you're proposing maybe we ought to also look at other emotions like happiness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think the the evolutionary psych perspective, once – once people get beyond concerns they might have about the E-word or yeah. evolution, um, but sort of once you get into the basic ideas of it, like you're saying, I, um, it does make a lot of sense. And, you know, students in my classes who, who learn about it tend to, tend to quickly come around to that perspective. And then it sort of gives you a whole framework for thinking about and asking so many questions about human behavior and psychology. So, so in a, in an interesting way, um, I kind of like it because it allows me to reframe these challenges. If if I'm feeling a lot of anger, um, and or 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 maybe I just kind of have a natural tendency to get angry, or a natural tendency to even seek happiness and be really positive and optimistic, um, I guess I could reframe that as this is just kind of how I've. Evolve. This this is a this is a trait that's really here to serve me. Instead of me thinking that every time I'm sad, or if I'm a very kind of melancholic person, that it that I it, I'm bad for some reason. It's not good for me. I'm probably not going to live very long. Right. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there's there's something um kind of forgiving about evolutionary yeah. psychology in a sense. Uh, yeah. That I think that there's there's a lot of things that you go through in life that are not that great, and when you kind of step back and say, you know what, when you look at the evolution of of humans, this was this was part of the deal for for thousands of generations. I think there's there's something um, useful about that. Do you do you sense that um, the positive psychology movement? I even use it in my practice, and it's I really like it because it brings so much hope. But I guess what your argument is, yeah, totally. You you're not anti positive psychology, but you're also right. not anti understanding the negatives of the world. 
Right, right. And I got to say that the tagline for your show, helping you be the good in the world, I think that's terrific. Um, And I think that that captures, you know, what's great about positive psychology. Um, And so, yeah, I think, you know, it would be it would be inappropriate for anyone to be to be against that kind of perspective. Um, I think what I'm sort of going for is trying to, to advance scholarship from an evolutionary perspective to sort of help shed light on and advance the goals of, of positive psychology. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. So, so we can think of, in, with any scientific endeavor or scholarly endeavor, we can think about what we call the basic area and the applied area. And so like basic research is research just sort of designed to advance our understanding of something, whereas applied stuff is stuff about helping people are solving some specific problem. So I kind of see it as positive psychology, I think, is, is an inherently applied area where it's about, you know, it has a mission, not just to advance knowledge, but to sort of make life better for people. Um, and evolutionary psychology is a much more basic scientific um, area, which mm-hmm. is really just designed to advance our understanding of human behavior using evolutionary principles. So... Um, I'm currently working on a book right now with my uh, former grad student, Nicole Wedberg, and it's titled Positive Evolutionary Psychology. Oh, Darwin's, cool. uh, And the uh, subtitle is Darwin's Guide to Living a Richer Life. Huh. And, it's a, you know, and it's really designed to take the work of evolutionary psychology and you know, discuss a whole bunch of ways that we can advance the goals of positive psychology therein. Is it, that's interesting because... Um... Because we would have evolved really for survival, which is different. Surviving seems different than thriving. Right. So is is, is evolutionary uh, psychology more in kind of basic survival, um, but not necessarily and uh, but not necessarily, um, I guess, creating a, a higher transcendent life? That's that's a really interesting question because I think positive psychologists are, are much more explicitly about the yeah, latter. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, but you know, evolutionary psychology has the capacity to to shed light. Uh, I explain that on, too. Yeah. On all of it, I, I think it really does. That's great. Um, one of the things I'm doing a study with several of my students right now on the evolutionary psychology of forgiveness and how that relates to apologetic behavior. Hmm. Um, so we're kind of looking at what are the conditions that really allow people to um, engage really well with their local social communities. And, you know, we kind of have this idea that forgiveness is something that exists because it allows us to stay connected to one another in small communities, which is obviously something that would help people thrive. Yeah. And, uh, And there's some research suggesting that apologizing um, when you've transgressed, it it actually is something that exists across cultures, and it seems to have a real similar kind of function. So we're looking at the relationship between those as um, two sides of the same coin that are really have the ultimate evolutionary function of keeping people in a small social community connected to one another. Well, and it might also explain why they're so why why we would need to apologize to to stay alive socially but maybe why we also don't take apologies very quickly and we don't forgive as easily because we also have needs to be safe yep yep a- absolutely so so they almost um, are at odds with each other 
They are, and it's really it's very complex, yeah. Because especially you know if if you have kids and you remember teaching them about apologizing and say you're sorry, and it's something that each parent probably says a thousand times to each kid. Um, we know the difference between a genuine apology and uh, you know just a um, just apology just for the sake of saying it, and that's something that we learn about very early on, and we're much more likely to forgive what we perceive as a genuine apology compared to you hmm. know, a forced apology. And so that's another thing that I think uh, builds into our social psychology regarding all this. Now, an important way to think about this entire topic from an evolutionary perspective has to do, to do with the fact that under ancestral conditions, human groups were always small. And, and the best evidence is that groups tended to be capped at about 150 until maybe 10, 12,000 years ago when agriculture and civilization came about. So for 99% of human evolution, we were in small clans. Mm. And if you're in a small clan of 150 and you trespass on one, two, or three of the people in that group and suddenly you're on the outs with those food folks, you're in, you know, yeah, you're, a danger. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So think, and now we live in this world where we have 500 friends on Facebook. Yep. And, and and a weird almost uh, social delay, like the, the feedback loop socially doesn't seem – or it, maybe it is more immediate or it doesn't seem as immediate as it would have been back then. I mean back then they sure. seemed like they would have just hit you with a club. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly right. I mean you know, a whole other way that evolutionary psychology can help us you know, dissect our modern lives is how incredibly technology-based communication is right now. Yeah. You know, and we know that that was not the case for, you know, thousands and thousands of generations. Yeah. So um, your, your ability to write an email and then go back and edit it and then have someone look at it and then, you know, send it out the next, the next day after it's written perfectly. We, you know, our ancestors didn't have that luxury when they were communicating with one another. Oh, yeah. um, and, and Facebook, you know, your Facebook profile probably is your best picture of yourself out of about 100 pictures that you could have chosen. Um, so we're kind of getting into this weird, weird world technologically where we're able to present ourselves in this optimal kind of way that w- was not available to our ancestors. Mm. And it seems like um, we also like we, we hear of these people that can that go to chat or they you know they'll go to a comment section online and they're more willing to say stuff that they would never say face to face and they feel emboldened. Yeah. Plus they they make they make up their identity. Um, and their right. kind of their profile. So it, it seems like evolutionarily, um, what what do you see the future looking like as we kind of evolve using more and more technology that changes our existence? Yeah, that, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the people in my field are are sensitive to that issue and are, are working on it. Um, David Sloan Wilson, who's at Binghamton, who's a, a close friend of mine, is a great scholar in the area. He's convinced that we need to, in every single way, create small-scale group structures and mentalities, even when we're talking about large-scale kinds of things. Um, So I know he's particularly working on issues of sustainability and connecting organizations in large areas that all have the function of um, advancing the goals of sustainability. And what his research is showing is that those groups that function best are the ones that um, adopt a small-scale group model, even if they have 500 employees or Mm. so. Um, So it's kind of like we need to 
go out of our way to create small-scale um, perspectives and, and living opportunities, even if we are in really large groups. So uh, I'm in a university um, setting. You know, we have some large classes, but we like to have small classes. We like to have uh, student clubs that have a small number of groups where, you know, they get to know each other for over longer hmm. periods of time. So you, you really have to, in the modern day and age, we need to um, force ourselves to create small-scale context because that's what our minds are adapted to experience. Oh, interesting. And and yet we we might be creating a context with technology where you can have, you know, I just did a speech with about a thousand people on the call, wow. but none of us were together, right? And right. so it's so it seems like it's big group, but you, everyone's alone, and mm-hmm. and yet uh, so so their interactions are different. And boy, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't, I have not, I've never heard of this need to keep the the scale or the size of the group being so important. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really interesting thing. So, you know, the technology, you know, one thing is there's no going back. I mean, I think we all know that there's absolutely no going back. So we just need to, you know, when we have a technology advance, we need to step back and think about, you know, what's best for humans from an evolutionary perspective before we just go full guns and, and, you know, lose it. Because in terms of, I'll tell you, in terms of food production, I think that we've done a very bad job, you know, because when when humans got into... Um, processed food production, all we did was find stuff that was easy to make, mm. easy to grow, that tasted good, yeah. and and we could produce cheaply. And, you know, that was done without thinking about how important natural right. foods are for people. And then suddenly we have an obesity epidemic and an entire society of people that are, you know, afraid of eating fruits and vegetables. That's right. And uh, t- tomorrow I go in to have my gallbladder out because I've just blown it up. Wow. <laughs> so it's but the reality is it's isn't that interesting that we don't if we don't take into account how we how we became who we are and how we've come to be who we are then you're you're not leading forward you're just blindly going to the slaughter. Yeah, exactly. So I I think that what we know about human evolution is so much right now and I think taking that into account at every step where technology advances is going to ultimately be to our best interest. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Well, Glenn, we appreciate your insight. Glenn, uh, Glenn Gare is his name, and uh, he's, he really is, I mean, again, we, people have issues with evolution and the whole E word, but in the psychology world, there's a lot to know about those generations of humans that have gone before you, right, and have helped shape who you are and why you have anxiety, why you have happiness, why you get depressed. All of these are traits that have have evolved and come with us, and they help us understand who we are today, and we'll need them to move forward. Um, So maybe don't get as hung up on the E-word, and instead, see what you can learn. See what applies. See what works. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. For all of our talk about evolutionary psychology, you still do wonder how some people are alive today because they keep making mistakes that you think, you know, that should have, you know, what is it? Selection of the fittest, survival of the fittest should have 
eliminated these people a long time ago. For example, New Jersey authorities say a driver fled the scene of an accident with a fire hydrant stuck to his car. And then he tossed it in the trash. Parsippany police say the motorist drove off after his car struck the hydrant and the mailbox on Tuesday. Police followed the trail of water from the scene to a township. Oh, oh boy. There he goes. There it is. Sparks. Man, I tell you. They followed the trail of water from the scene to a township home where they found the car and the hydrant. The driver was found in a nearby diner. What? I was just eating dinner. Just eating dinner. Who put that hydrant on my car? Police say 27-year-old township resident Domingo Moreno has been charged with criminal mischief, hindering apprehension, and tampering with evidence. Police are investigating the cause and other details of the crash. Apparently, the hydrant was then found in like a trash can. I mean, what? I mean, hydrants aren't easy to carry. You had to have noticed, like, something's wrong with my car. What's with all the sparks flying as I'm dragging a hydrant under my car? Again, I'm telling you, something, maybe that is the argument against evolution because that guy maybe shouldn't be alive. He shouldn't, you know, he shouldn't be alive. Anyway, crazy stuff. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but it's it's good. It's good because today he's going in for his long-awaited surgery that uh, he keeps complaining about this, you know, gallbladder problem. I, I shouldn't make light of it. Um, he gets to go on today, so we're, we're grateful for that. Send him a tweet. Send him a, a text. Just send all your positive energy and prayers his way. I'm sure he, he'd appreciate that. And, uh, you know, maybe he could do well uh, to celebrate International Yoga Day today, too. Oh, not Yoga Day. No, it is International Yoga Day. (laughs) But, uh, you know, just relax, Dr. Matt. Take a breather. Watch a lot of Netflix shows. I guess that would defeat the whole purpose of relaxing and listening to yoga music. But uh, maybe he can take a selfie while he's in the hospital, too, because today is also Selfie Day. And, uh, Cole, I don't know if you knew this, but there was actually a TV show called Selfie. Nope, you're educating me. It didn't uh, last very long, and in fact, I never watched it. Why would I? I, Obviously not if it got canceled. But uh, yes, we do wish Dr. Matt well, and uh, he'll be back Monday. We've also got some more movie news for you, since we don't get to do our movie show on Friday, because we, we thought Sports Nation is doing such a good job that we decided to donate an hour of our show to them. Um, but I know I, I glanced at Terry's papers while they were sitting in the printer. So I know one, at least one of these stories he had printed out. So I'm going to let him share this bit of news. But uh, it has something to do with a Star Wars film. Yeah, leave it alone. Okay. I won't say anything else. Big news coming up. 
Yes, yes. Uh, we've, we're also going to be speaking with Lindsay M. Harris, who's going to be posing the question, is the U.S. immigration court system broken? Very interesting and important topic coming up later on the program. But first, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Maybe we'll get that Star Wars news out of them. So uh, Republican Karen Handel has defeated Democrat John Ossoff as the special congressional election runoff in Georgia. The campaign to replace Tom Price, viewed feverishly, as it says, as some kind of referendum against President Trump, ended up being the most expensive House race in history. $50 million between the two candidates spent. Republican Ralph Norman won Tuesday's special election in South Carolina for U.S. House seat, uh, defeating Democrat Archie Parnell in a solid GOP 5th Congressional District, apparently in South Carolina. Uh, Very, very low turnout. As these elections usually are, the special election usually doesn't get a lot of attention for some reason. And yet they spent $50 million. In Georgia. Oh, my goodness. South Carolina just had really bad turnout, apparently. Wow. I'm not sure what the numbers were on that, but that was the reports. Uh, Travis Kalanick resigned as the CEO of Uber after shareholders of the ride-hailing service demand his ouster. They demanded his ouster, the New York Times reports. Investors reportedly delivered a letter to Kalanick on Tuesday entitled Move Uber Forward, in which they demanded an immediate change in leadership. Kalanick, who helped found the company in 2009, will remain on the board, but has agreed to resign as CEO. Uh, I love Uber more than anything in the world, and at this difficult moment in my personal life, I have accepted the investor's request to step aside so that Uber can go back to building rather than being distracted with another fight. He said in a statement, his uh, parents recently died in a boating accident, I believe. He's mm. trying to deal with that. Plus, yeah. Uber's been embroiled in all these sexual harassment claims and legal oh, challenges. The the kind of uh, corporate mentality has been to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Mm-hmm. So they'll go yeah. into a new market and just let the cars loose instead of you know figuring out, is this do we have to go like... Are we considered a taxi company? Do we have to be regulated like a taxi? And they just didn't care. They just put it out there, and then the states would sue them, and they would try to figure it out later. And that kind of a mentality got ahead of them, and that's when you get the sexual harassment claims. You get some other problems going on, and so they're Mm. uh, they're trying to get an adult to run the company is kind of the (laughs) the idea out there. So we'll see how how Uber goes, and it's a it's a huge company, billion dollar company. It's kind of changed how many people travel. Wouldn't that be funny if that was the one and only, uh, you know, job description on, you know, oh, you just have to be an adult. Just have to be an adult. And the job is yours. It's the same. I mean, a lot of companies do this. You uh, Facebook, they put someone in charge that knew how to run a business. Yeah. Right. And so at that point, all of a sudden, Facebook took off before it was just kind of a guy that rolled out of college with an idea. Yeah. And they need someone to help him shape it. So that's kind of what they're trying to do with Uber. Um, Amazon, they uh, came out with the news recently that they had uh, put $13.7 billion towards buying Whole Foods. That made headlines last week, but the LA Times reports that it may not be a done deal as previously believed. Amazon agreed to pay $42 a share for the grocery chain, but those shares closed at more than $43 a share Monday. That means investors oh expect a higher bid to come in, with one expert calling it highly unlikely. Potential bidders include Kroger, Albertsons, and Walmart. And while it's unlikely anyone could outbid Amazon, its competitors have an obvious interest in making Amazon's takeover of Whole Foods as painful financially as possible. So oh, they can, sure. You toss in a counter bid and make them up their bid again so they have to pay more money. Now, I know Albertsons 
is your store That's is their say. slogan. But there's no way they could outbid Amazon. No. But you could make a competitive offer and make Amazon rebid. So they have to spend more yeah. money just to kind of put the kind of the knife in there a little bit. So comedian Jim Gaffigan tweeted, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one being overcharged by Whole Foods. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's got a great bit on, on Whole Foods. But uh, I'm uh, reading all these articles. So we're trying to see if we can find someone to talk about it more. But uh, just the idea that Amazon doing that would make all the other grocery stores maybe lower prices hmm. to try to compete. Because Albertsons, what they what they try to do is they get into a new a new market, a new industry, whether it's grocery or clothing or shoes or whatever, and they just sort of drive the prices down until the competitors give up. Yeah, and then it's their market. And I was hearing somewhere saying that in the grocery market, all they would have to do is get about 25% of the national market, and it would really cause problems in the grocery mm. industry. So. You know, it would be interesting to see if Amazon would want to do one of those Whole Foods stores where there aren't any employees, where you can just well, grab your groceries and kind of like what they're doing with their pilot program right now. Right. And now they don't have to actually build anything if they buy all these stores. They're right. They have 400 locations ready to go. But, I mean, obviously they're going to keep the Whole Foods name and brand yeah, yeah. and all that. Yeah. But then maybe incorporate some of those things we saw in that test store they had in Seattle. Interesting. See what happened. Now, finally, the news you alluded to at the <gasps> beginning. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller announced on Tuesday that they are stepping down as directors of the Star Wars Han Solo spinoff movie. No! says, unfortunately, our vision, that means, well, many people, I was reading online last night, now it's ruined. The movie's, it's ruined. There's no way to come back from this. Your directors are gone. So they say, unfortunately, our vision and process weren't aligned with our partners on this project. That would be Disney. Yeah. Uh, We normally aren't fans of the phrase creative differences, but for once, this cliche is true. We are really proud of the amazing and world-class work that our cast and crew of our cast and crew, they said in the statement, Lord and Miller previously directed the Lego movie and 21 Jump Street. There are reportedly still several weeks left in the shoot. So they're right in the middle of the process right now. And it's unclear who currently is in charge of it. The film is set to be released May 25th of 2018. I read this morning that one of the rumors of someone to take over this project is Ron Howard. Hmm. I'm not sure what that would be like or mean, but... Well, he does, he has a sense of humor, I guess, because he was the narrator in Arrested Development. Right. Um, but I mean, they had, they had they had the same problem with uh, um, Rogue One. They had several directors come through that process. It wasn't the that original I didn't person, know. and it was again kind of a vision idea. What what the original idea was wasn't what Disney wanted towards the end, and so you know they shifted that way. So, so I don't know. I wonder. The, I hope they get some kind of credit. For this film, I don't maybe I don't know if they'll end up as the directors listed on the. Oh, probably not though. I would think. You know, it's know. interesting. You mentioned the Lego Movie, mm-hmm. Twenty One Jump Street, right. Twenty Two Jump Street. Mm-hmm. Those were all huge hits. You would think at a certain point the producers would just trust your vision and your way of doing things. Is is Star Wars a little too sacred? Is that kind of its own thing that you could have directed Citizen Kane, and yet if you touch our Star Wars movies, you're going to do it our way? Well, from what I've read, it kind of seems like Disney's approaching it the way that Marvel is doing it. Because you see the same thing in a lot of the Marvel movies. They go through directors after directors because this is our vision. If you don't want to do our vision, we'll find someone who will do our vision. This isn't for mm. you to come in and tell us how to do our character is kind of how Marvel looks at it. 
And so I think Star Wars is kind of the same way. This They come in, this is what we want to do. Then the director comes in, well, let's try this. Well, no, okay, and then they leave. Because the director wants to have their creative input, and maybe they're just overly protective of their characters. You know what they ought to do? They should just have the producers direct the film. Well, <laughs> yeah. I got a bad but, feeling about this. Oh, They're just convinced too. that they can find a director who will do it their way. Yeah. Not not the way the director wants to do it. It's it's really a shame because it seems like Han so- a Han Solo movie and Han Solo does have such a great sense of humor would have fit so well with those two directors. So right. it's kind of a shame. What was uh the the movie Wonder Woman that just came out directed mm-hmm. by Patty Jenkins? She was one of the original directors for uh the second Thor movie. Okay. And she, which I did not see. She walked away. Because her vision for it wasn't what Marvel wanted. She wanted to do like a Romeo Juliet type of approach. And hmm. they're like, no, we have this Infinity Stone. We need to progress the story. So do it that way. And she's like, yeah. So Disney I don't know just it. needs big generic action movies, big generic blockbusters. Whenever right. Edgar Wright comes in and tries to make Ant-Man a cool heist movie, mm-hmm. he steps away because they can't handle that. Same Patty Jenkins had that. See, I could, I, I can understand that though because they're they've got this overall you know story arc yeah, that yeah. they're trying to build, but with Star Wars, I mean, yeah. they're all these splinter films, and it's not like they're all they're one. You know, it's a one shot. This is the story. Yeah, you do it this way, but they seem to be very protective of what's going wow. on. Wow, wow. Though they still had those big, what Force Awakens had that big gobbly monster in the that han solo was trafficking around the, oh you know? right yeah yeah you're like why you got slime monsters in the movie it didn't <laughs> i'm watching that i go this doesn't quite work for a star wars movie i mean the only monster they really had was that that pit that jabba the hut was trying to talk <laughs> oh, yeah. in the original into. it's not a monster <laughs> that thing scared well, me as a kid and then the other one was in the the garbage chute in the in the death star they had some monster down there that was eating the garbage and tried to take on or uh, luke skywalker remember that that's so, right other than that i'm like what kind of monsters did they have in this movie before then, the special edition though the sarlacc was just spikes in a hole yeah yeah, yeah. there was nothing coming out of it it was yeah. it they just <laughs> fell in oh yeah and then george lucas had to go and mess it all up you know, it'll be interesting to see how Captain – is it Captain Phasma? The 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 woman – The silver stormtrooper. Yeah, it'll powers. be interesting to see how she survived the trash compactor because didn't they throw her in there? Or they said that they were going to. Yeah. They'll probably just not address it because huh. it'll be a different director. Just moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, just you got directors and difference of opinions and – but then the internet just runs away with the fact that you're just you're ruining it. It's all over, yeah. you know, and you, you'll never recover. And everyone's worried, and it's like settle down. You know, Cole mentioned big generic uh, blockbusters. Hmm. The new Transformers movie is coming out on Friday. Not good reviews, but it's a Transformers movie. But you'll go see it, right? No, I'll watch <gasps> it later. I never. I've seen the first one, and I think the second one in the theater, and then I kind of went, okay, I like them, but they're pretty bad. So yeah, I'll, but- I'll catch it later, and I, I just sit there, and I just can't I, – I understand when people criticize these movies, but nobody cares. They're going to make a billion dollars on this movie because <laughs> the- you have robots, and they're fighting other robots, and people just enjoy that for some reason. The acting, yeah. it's almost like the humans are in the way, hmm. right? I mean, you got Mark Wahlberg in this, right? That's yep. the Wahlberg. That's, he's not necessarily the greatest actor in the world. And uh, he, when you watch, it's all cut scenes for the, for the humans – and then it's all about just robots transform and, you know, roll out or whatever. That's the, the you know, tagline. Yeah. 
It's one of those films where the robots are more interesting than the humans. Right. They should just move the humans out of the way. Just don't step <laughs> on them because you're trying to be the good guy and then, you know, fight the movie. But Cole, are you going to go see Transformers The Last Night? Not for $10 in a theater. No. <laughs> well, maybe you could go on the discount Tuesday I'll or catch something. it for, what is it, two and a half on Netflix or whatever, dollar fifty, whatever. I get the DVDs on Netflix. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you get those, and it's pretty cheap if you look at it that way. And apparently Mark Wahlberg doesn't want to do it anymore. Well, he's probably looking at maybe Transformers is dragging his career down. It's not just him this time. It's actually the movie he's Transformers in. is getting ready for their big universe, too. There'll be the Bumblebee spinoff. That's right. And their oh, whole I can't wait for that. Expanded thing. Wow. Well, that'll be exciting for someone other than us here at the Matt Townsend Show. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we return, uh, as promised, we're going to be speaking with Len, uh, Lindsay Harris, who's going to be answering the question, is the immigration court system broken? Very interesting uh, and very important topic when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we have a shortage of law clerks, judges, and asylum case officers to assist people seeking asylum and people who don't want to get sent back to their home country. Even if we hired 300 more asylum officers, it will still take us uh, to the year 2020 for us to get through all of our backlog. Is our immigration court system broken? Well, here to speak with us today about this is Lindsay Harris, who's an assistant professor of law at UDC David A. Clark School of Law. She co-directs the Immigration and Human Rights Clinic. And uh, prior to joining the faculty at UDC, Professor Harris spent a year with the American Immigration Council focused on efforts to end the detention of immigrant families seeking protection in the United States as part of the CARA Family Detention Pro Bono Project. Lindsay, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me here today. And thank you so much for your time. This is such an important topic, and uh, we appreciate your insight on this. So, first of all, I'm curious to know, what exactly does asylum mean? So that's a great question. There's a lot of confusion around it, uh, but particularly because yesterday was World Refugee Day, this is a really good time for us to be talking about that. Um, so asylum actually means that you have met the refugee definition. So somebody seeking asylum is seeking refugee protection. And asylum is for people who are afraid to return to their home country. The home country cannot protect them, or sometimes it's the home country, the government, that is actually targeting them. Um, so they're afraid to return to the home country because they've already been persecuted or they fear persecution, bad things happening in the future. And it has to be on account of one of five reasons. So because of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or something pretty messy, which is called particular social group. Oh, my goodness. So how do these, yeah. <laughs> how do these people apply for asylum in the U.S.? So that's a pretty complicated question, too. There's a few different ways you do it. Um, some people come here with a visa, with a valid visa. They come in as a tourist or on a student visa, for example, and then they apply for asylum after they get here. Um, some of those people, they weren't actually afraid when they left their home country, but something happened after they got here, maybe a regime change, 
and then they have a need to seek protection. So they file a form. Uh, the form's you know, available on a website, and they file it with the Department of Homeland Security, and eventually they get an asylum interview. Uh, right now, that can take anywhere from two to five years just to get that interview, to talk about their case and figure out what they're afraid of and whether they should be granted asylum. So that's the, one way. Yeah. Is there another way? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of other ways. Another way is <laughs> if people are here in the U.S. and they're undocumented. You know, we have, it's estimated, more than 11 million undocumented people, people living without immigration status, um, and they are apprehended by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is known as ICE. That's the, uh, the kind of uh, cold acronym for the enforcement wing of the Department of Homeland Security. So if ICE picks you up and catches you, finds you without papers in the U.S., then they will put you into removal proceedings, which means they put you into immigration court. Um, and some of those people, if they are afraid to return home, they can file for asylum as a defense um, to their removal from the U.S. So that's called defensive asylum because it's, it's their defense. Like in criminal court, you have various defenses. Their defense to removal is that they're afraid to go home and they file for asylum. And then there's one more way, um, which is actually a way that has uh, uh, we've seen increasing numbers of people coming through this uh, channel to seek asylum. And that is people who simply come to the border. They don't have any legal papers to come here. Um, many of them actually walk up to a customs and border protection uh, post and ask for asylum protection. Uh, wow. These people right now, we actually have people coming from all over the world to our southern border, many from Central America, from Honduras, uh, El Salvador, and Guatemala, but also from people come from West Africa, um, Central Africa, uh, and travel all the way up through South and Central America and come and seek asylum here. Um, so they show up at the border and they ask for protection, and they go through a pretty different process. Um, they're immediately detained, for example, and then they have a kind of screening interview. If they say that they're afraid to go home, they're entitled to a credible fear interview to figure out kind of, you know, is there a threshold eligibility that they can establish for asylum? And if they pass that interview and get a positive result, then they get in line to present their case before an immigration judge, um, which, again, can take many years to actually uh, wait for that hearing and have your case resolved. You know, this is just the, the more you talk about this, the, the more I realize just how scary this is. I mean, you mentioned somebody coming to visit the United States and then something happens back home and all of a sudden they, they can't go back. I can't even imagine how scary that would be. Or even, you know, I, I did have a brother that uh, that served an LDS mission in uh, Honduras and, mm. you know, he had to be evacuated out of Honduras and moved over to El Salvador. I mean, but for somebody who that's their home and all of a sudden, you, let's say you're, you're waking up in the middle of the night and your parents or your loved ones are saying, we've got to go. We've got to go now. I can't even imagine how scary that must be for them. Right. So people are often coming without a whole lot of documentation, right, or, or financial resources to support themselves once they get here. Um, if somebody is fleeing in the middle of the night to save their lives and the lives of you know, their spouse, their children perhaps, then they don't necessarily come with the means to financially support themselves once they get here, um, if they're lucky enough to get in and, and seek this protection. Okay, so and you may have answered this already, but I just want to clarify. So let's say somebody is in the waiting process to find out if, if they're going to be able to stay in the country. Do they get to stay in the country while they're waiting, or do they immediately get sent to detention centers? 
So usually they, they get to stay. Um, whether they're detained or not depends, um, and that's a discretionary decision that the U.S. government has. Um, since the election, we have seen increasing numbers of asylum seekers held in detention while they wait for the adjudication of their cases. Um, technically, anyone coming in without documentation has to be detained for a short time to determine you know, who they are and whether they have a claim for asylum. But then if they can kind of establish who they are, they should be released on parole and allowed to pursue their case um, while living in our communities. Uh, but again, you know, this really depends. And we have seen ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, Department, uh, exercising discretion to detain people for longer. And when you have asylum seekers in detention, that does pose a number of issues. Uh, some of these individuals have already suffered extreme harm, torture, beatings, detention in their home country. And so putting someone who has, is living with the results of that kind of trauma in a detained setting, again, can often pose a, a number of problems. So, Lindsay, I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, typically, how long would a person remain in a detention center before they are either deported or simply released? And then also, what are what are these detention centers like? So, those are good questions. The detention centers are, um, many of them are jails, um, have been former jails, uh, for example. And the time people are detained really depends. Uh, detained asylum seekers and detained immigrants should be on a faster track uh, for for processing of their cases, but our court is so backlogged that they often are spending several months in there. Or there are some extreme examples. Right now we have um, moms and children who have been detained at a at what's called a family detention center in uh, Berks County, Pennsylvania, Leesport, Pennsylvania, and they have been there now for more than a year, some of those families, including kids like toddlers, two-year-olds. Um, I'm thinking of one kid who's been detained since October 2015. So he's coming up, he's more than a year and a half of, of being held in this detention center. Um, that one is a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little friendlier. It's a former residential nursing home, but it's still a secure facility, um, you know, with dorms that the detained families sleep in and they're not allowed to leave. There are guards. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still a deprivation of liberty, and people are, um, in that setting, not held behind bars, but definitely behind walls. So I'm, I'm interested to know, I, I read this article uh, that you wrote, and I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more. We, we talked about how scary it, it would be for somebody to have to leave their country or, or realize they can't go back to their country. Talk to us about this uh, credible fear interview that is conducted. So that's an interview that usually happens within a few days of someone entering the U.S., or it should do by statute. It should happen very quickly. Um, and it's supposed to be a non-adversarial interview with an asylum officer. And right now we've actually been, um, in the last few years, we've been sending asylum officers from the eight asylum officers nationwide down to the border, down to Texas largely, where we've been detaining um, you know, a lot of immigrants and families uh, to conduct these interviews. And they can be anywhere from, you know, 45 minutes, an hour to three hours long. Um, and it's really just supposed to be a, an interview to see whether someone has a significant possibility that they could be eligible for asylum. Um, and the officer can either say, yes, it looks, it looks good. It looks like they have a credible fear of persecution. Um, and in which case they are typically um, now released, um, sometimes with an electronic ankle monitor on their foot. 
and allowed to pursue their claim. They stand in line in the immigration court to get their hearing. Um, and it can take two years just to get an initial pleading or scheduling hearing and another couple of years to get the case actually adjudicated. Um, so they're kind of living in limbo in that time period. That's... Or the asylum officer could say, I don't think this person has a credible fear of persecution. Um, and in that case, unless they seek review before an immigration judge, which they have a right to do within seven days, um, then they would be quickly deported. It's actually called, the process is actually called expedited removal. So swift deportations is the idea. We, the government, create, Congress created expedited removal to get people in and out of the U.S. very quickly, unless they have a valid basis to remain. It's so interesting because in some ways it almost sounds like they're in prison or they're on house arrest. That's so interesting. Um, it, it sounds like these these credible fear interviews are, you know, they don't last as long as as you would think, and it also sounds that uh, it sounds like most of them go through and are approved, and and these people get to stay a little longer, right? What are the numbers on that? Yeah, most of them actually. I mean, especially the the numbers that we've been seeing in the family detention centers, um, and these are women and children who the government picked up. and And prior to two thousand fourteen, we didn't actually use to detain them. We used to just. Um, release them on parole and send them before an immigration judge to show up to, to proceed with their case. Um, but now we detain them and, and subject them to this credible fear process. And um, But the numbers are really high. When I was working in this uh, field and, and back when the government was telling us the numbers of successful uh, credible fear interviews, it was like 85 to 90 percent. Um, and then by the time you've gone before an immigration judge to get some of those erroneous uh, denials are returned. Especially more like 95% of these families are granted, are found to have a credible fear. Um, and that's really reflective of the mess that is going on on the ground, the humanitarian crisis um, that is occurring right now in Central America, uh, with extreme levels of violence perpetrated by gangs, very powerful transnational criminal organizations rather than gangs, to be honest. Um, and also very high levels of abuse of women, r- really extreme levels of violence against women. Um, in the household and outside the household. So it's not well, surprising to me that most people pass that interview. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, this is, thank you so much for helping us understand more on this uh, complex issue. Let, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the numbers here and how much the United States is spending and the number of employees that they currently have and, and what it would take to to get rid of some of this backlog. So we'll take a break. When we return, we'll continue our discussion here with Lindsay Harris, who is an assistant professor of law at UDC David A. Clark School of Law. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Lindsay M. Harris, who is uh, an assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and she's been talking to us about the current immigration court system and, and whether or not it's broken. And we want to get uh, want to dig a little deeper into this topic with her now. And Lindsay, I was hoping that you could, first of all, give us some of the numbers uh, that go into this process. How much money is is currently being allocated to Homeland Security, and where is that money going? So 
the amount of money that has been allocated for immigration enforcement in general has really expanded in the last, let's say, 15 years. So uh, since 2002, it's quadrupled. It was about $4.5 billion in, 2000, in 2002, which is a decent chunk of change. But in 2016, we had $20.1 billion allocated to immigration enforcement. So that means the people out there working on the border and within our borders, picking up, apprehending people who do not have legal status um, or or prosecuting um, people who have violated the terms of their immigration status, perhaps by committing a crime. Uh, But during the same period, the resources for immigration courts, and pretty much everyone has the right to go before an immigration court before they are removed, um, have actually only increased by 74%, so not 400%. So what we're seeing is a huge backlog in the immigration court. Uh, right now, it's close to 600,000 cases. It's, you know, even wow. since I, I wrote an article on this earlier this year, and I think we were at about at 525. Now we're at 598,000 cases, um, backlogs in the immigration court system. And those cases are divided between 326 judges. You're kidding. Oh, my goodness. So why, yeah, why so few? Um, so one of the problems is definitely hiring takes a very long time. Um, the Government Accountability Office actually just issued a report to Congress on actions needed to reduce these case backlogs. And one of the things they found was that it takes almost two years to hire a new immigration judge. Um, the system that the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is the piece of the Depart- Department of Justice that adjudicates these cases, that the HR is just very slow. There's a lot of background checks, a lot of different steps and um, checks to the process. And, of course, we, we want to make sure that anybody that we're putting on a bench to make these life-or-death decisions is going to be a good judge. Uh, but two years to get somebody new on board is really quite uh, a delay. Um, the other issue is just, you know, the funding. We don't have uh, the funding uh, to add enough immigration judges to really make a dent in these really backlogged dockets. Uh, immigration judges themselves will say part of this is the complexity of the law has developed um, over the years, and these cases take longer. Um, you know, more people are seeking asylum with very complicated claims that take a good amount of time to adjudicate, you know, three or four hours on the record with testimony and opening and closing statements and direct and cross-examination. These are real cases in, in a very much court-like setting. Oh, my goodness. So what was that number again? 300, how many judges? So three. So they just appointed 11 new judges this past week. That was announced last Friday. So that brings us to 326 immigration judges, and they're spread between 58 immigration courts nationwide. Um, but those judges have <laughs> to work through almost 600,000 cases, more than half a million cases for just those 326 judges. Wow. So 326 judges, half a million cases. Do they, are there other types of cases that are heard in immigration court? Yeah, there are. So we've been talking about asylum, so for people who are afraid to return to their home country. But in immigration court, you're really going to see anybody who uh, is undocumented here in the U.S., so people who don't have any legal status um, and may have other claims for protection. It might be asylum. They might be eligible for some other things called cancellation or removal or other forms of relief. Um, Or you may also be seeing people who are lawful permanent residents. We usually refer to them as green card holders. 
um, and they may have violated the terms, essentially, of being a green card holder, a lawful permanent resident, um, and perhaps committed a crime that renders them deportable. So they put them into removal proceedings as well. So but, it's a whole range of people that you're seeing uh, in immigration court, from somebody who just has no papers, has been here for you know any number of years, um, but has no basis to remain, to people who have been here lawfully, um, but perhaps um, committed a crime or been charged and convicted of a crime, uh, and then asylum seekers too. So are these separate from the asylum cases, or are these in addition to the asylum cases? That's in addition. So the backlog is oh 600,000 cases, includes all of those different folks in there. Wow. And only 326 judges. Uh, I'm curious. I, I don't know that the, the U.S. government would ever do this, but it would a possible so it wouldn't be you know a long term solution by any means but obviously there are pro bono attorneys can there be such a thing as a pro bono judge that can oversee some of these cases uh, so we have sometimes brought back in retired immigration judges to try and deal with the backlog but this backlog is worse than it has ever been so it's probably going to take more than that and one of the frightening things is that close to 40% of the current judges of the 326 judges we're talking about are actually eligible for retirement. Oh, no. Uh, so at any point, those guys and those you know civil servants who've been serving for some time um, could decide to take retirement, and then we're going to need to replace them you know, as quickly as possible. But again, the hiring seems to take quite a long time. Oh, my goodness. So, okay, so it's not just a problem with uh, insufficient judges, but now, what about the asylum officers who are working in, in these detention centers and conducting these credible fear interviews? Do we have enough of those, or are we, is there, you know, are we still missing out on a number of those as well? Well, yeah, we have about 500. I think in February there are 527 asylum officers, and they work in eight different um, asylum offices nationwide. So they're a little bit more spread out, but there are more of them. Um, and we have actually been authorized to hire as many as 625. But again, the hiring and training of these officers to actually get them on board and, and hearing, you know, conducting interviews takes some time. Um, and the, the huge numbers we saw of credible fear interviews at the border, which was, you know, over 60,000 last year, means that people are being diverted from their ordinary work and going down to the border to conduct these other types of interviews, these credible fear interviews. Um, so that, that creates a backlog. So you're seeing in asylum offices like the Los Angeles Asylum Office, for example, from the time that you file asylum to the time you get your interview to determine whether you're eligible, uh, it's almost five years. Oh, my goodness. So, oh, okay, you, you've talked to us a, a little bit about why this whole system and this process seems so inefficient. So now, what are some ideas that you have for fixing this? How can we improve this, maybe save some money, get these cases through a little faster? Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, one of them would be increasing access to counsel. So there's a few reasons to increase access to counsel. Uh, one of them, from the immigrant's perspective, being, of course, that levels of relief being granted are much, much higher if you have representation. This is a really convoluted and complex system, and so having somebody who understands that to walk you through it is really important. Uh, there was one study from uh, an entity within Syracuse University that found that kids in immigration court are 17 times more likely um, to succeed 
basically with an attorney. So 17 times more likely that you would be, be granted relief. Um, so that, that's one advantage to access to counsel. But the other advantage is when you have lawyers working on these cases, they're effectively screening them for the judges and working through the legal issues, negotiating with their opposing counsel from the government. Um, and so there's some efficiencies that can be gained from additional representation of people rather than individuals going into court who don't speak English, who, um, you know, are trying to advocate on their own behalf, but half that really don't understand the system. So judges have to spend a lot more time figuring out, like, what is the story here? Does this person have any claims for relief? Um, if we can push that to the attorneys, there would be some efficiencies in the system. Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Matt Townsend is is at the doctor today. I, I've got a doctor's appointment today. And one thing that I've always noticed is how silly it seems to me that I, I arrive, I fill out all these documents, and then I'm I'm in front of a nurse. And the nurse asks me all these questions that I've already answered on the papers. And then the doctor comes in, and he asks me all those same questions that the nurse asked me <laughs> and that were on all the forms. And one of the ideas that, that I noticed that you put here in your article is that uh, – you know, um, we shouldn't be asking asylum seekers to present their cases before both asylum officers and judges. And I'm, I'm just curious to know how much time could that save if we were to just have the asylum officers do that? And how much money would that save? Yeah, so just to clarify, I mean, asylum officers do grant asylum every day. They have the power to do that um, with the people who come in and are here legally and, and file for themselves. Um, or, you know, are within the, our country's borders and they file for asylum, asylum officers every day will adjudicate those claims and grant asylum. Um, if they don't feel like the person deserves asylum, then the person gets sent to immigration court. Um, but with the credible theory interviews, that's where you're essentially um, telling your story to an asylum officer and then having to wait several years again to tell it before a judge. Um, asylum officers are trained to grant asylum, so my thinking is if they come across somebody in a credible fear interview and they spend two hours with the person and they fill out the case and it seems like a really strong case and they know that if that person was back in their home office, right, in um, you know Miami or Virginia or New York or wherever they came from where they conduct their regular asylum interviews, they're called affirmative asylum interviews, if, if that person meets that standard, then they should be able to just go ahead and grant asylum rather than making them go through this whole process and wait for, you know, however many years to see a judge. That's quite duplicative. Um, and it does seem like that could, uh, certainly if we had done that uh, with uh, all of the strong cases, I don't know how many of them asylum officers would have felt comfortable granting, but we could certainly see, you know, potentially more than 100,000 less cases in the immigration court backlog um, at this stage. And wow. I don't know how the financial resources would work out. Yeah. You know, Lindsay, one thing we haven't talked about in, in this interview is what, you know, let's say I'm an illegal immigrant. Uh, what sort of rights do I have? So I would prefer to use the terminology undocumented just because I think calling a human being illegal is hard, right? Um, they, they have violated our civil laws, our immigration laws by being here without documentation. Um, so, yeah, something undocumented um, you know, it does have certain rights. They do have the right to go before an immigration judge if they're removed. Um, there is this process called expedited removal, which the Trump administration is very interested in expanding. Um, right now, it, it typically operates as if you've only been here less than two weeks and you're within 100 miles of our border, 
then we can very quickly deport you unless you have a fear of return to your home country. So unless you have a fear of persecution, of torture, then you would get your credible fear interview and go through that whole process. But if you don't, then typically you can be moved, removed very fast. Um, now, the current administration have talked about expanding expedited removal to people who have been um, in the country for two years or less. Um, and so that you know, and anywhere in the country, so not within 100 miles of the border. Um, so that would that would really subject most of those, a lot more people to expedited removal. And they wouldn't necessarily have that chance to go before a judge unless they have a fear of return and a potential asylum claim. But typically, if you've been here, um, you know, more than two years, certainly, then you have the right to go before an immigration judge and to assert any defenses you have to your, your removal from the country. Lindsay, just in closing, is there anything that the average citizen can do, whether it's just helping those who are undocumented immigrants or refugees? Obviously, there are you know, all sorts of donations that we can make, but what, what can just the everyday citizen do to just become more educated or to help out? Yeah, I think it's really great to, to educate yourself um, and also to help out. A lot of people seeking asylum, you know, are torture survivors with very compelling stories and claims, um, and they have a hard time integrating into life in the U.S., partially because we don't let them work <laughs> until after six months after they've filed their asylum application. So, but we also don't give them any financial benefits or housing. Um, so often asylum seekers are really struggling um, so I'm on the board of a new nonprofit in the D.C. metro area that we started to try and help people in that situation. So people who are going through the project, um, and it's called ASAP, ASAP. It's the Asylum Seeker Assistance, Assistance Project. Um, and so we are, we are trying to engage with these individuals uh, while they're going through the process, help them find a place to learn English if they need to. Um, some of them are coming as doctors, lawyers, engineers, help them figure out a path to, you know, actually practicing their profession or something somewhat close to it while they're here in the U.S. Um, so, and we're always looking for volunteers and mentors in various fields uh, for those individuals. So you could find out more by um, checking out our website, which is asapprojectdc.org. Uh, but there's lots of other organizations. Uh, the U.N. High Commission for Refugee um, has a wonderful website with a lot of great graphics and ways to kind of educate yourselves. And more than just listening or reading, you can actually look at who is a refugee, where are they coming from, where are they going, um, what is our country doing about it uh, compared to the rest of the world. So I think educating yourselves on, on who, what is a refugee, how does that um, differ from undocumented immigrants in general, uh, can certainly be be helpful in raising awareness, especially because we've just seen um, some some hostility towards uh, refugees in the current uh, political climate in recent months. Well, Lindsay, we really appreciate your insight on this topic. It's very complex, and but very important nonetheless. And thank you also for the ideas of, of what we can do to help. That's really important. You know, it's one thing to just sit here and listen to this interview and, and find it interesting, but it's it's another thing to actually have a takeaway from this and, and be able to go away and, and make a difference. So again, thank you so much. Her name is Lindsay M. Harris, and she is an assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and she's been talking to us more about immigration, the immigration court system. We really appreciate her time here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will continue the discussion.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Lindsay M. Harris, who is uh, an assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and she's been talking to us about the current immigration court system and, and whether or not it's broken. And we want to get uh, want to dig a little deeper into this topic with her now. And Lindsay, I was hoping that you could, first of all, give us some of the numbers uh, that go into this process. How much money is is currently being allocated to Homeland Security, and where is that money going? So the amount of money that has been allocated for immigration enforcement in general has really expanded in the last, let's say, 15 years. So uh, since 2002, it's quadrupled. It was about $4.5 billion in, 2000, in 2002, which is a decent chunk of change. But in 2016, we had $20.1 billion allocated to immigration enforcement. So that means the people out there working on the border and within our borders, picking up, apprehending people who do not have legal status um, or or prosecuting um, people who have violated the terms of their immigration status, perhaps by committing a crime. Uh, But during the same period, the resources for immigration courts, and pretty much everyone has the right to go before an immigration court before they are removed, um, have actually only increased by 74%, so not you know 400%. So what we're seeing is a huge backlog in the immigration court. Uh, right now, it's close to 600,000 cases. It's you know even wow. since I I wrote an article on this earlier this year, and I think we were at about at 525. Now we're at 598,000 cases um, backlogs in the immigration court system. Those cases are divided between 326 judges. You're kidding. Oh, my goodness. So why yeah, why so few? Um, so one of the problems is definitely hiring takes a very long time. Um, the Government Accountability Office actually just issued a report to Congress on actions needed to reduce these case backlogs. And one of the things they found was that it takes almost two years to hire a new immigration judge. Um, the system that the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is the piece of the Depart- Department of Justice that adjudicates these cases, that the HR is just very slow. There's a lot of background checks, a lot of different steps and um, checks to the process. And, of course, we, we want to make sure that anybody that we're putting on a bench to make these life-or-death decisions is going to be a good judge. Uh, but two years to get somebody new on board is really quite uh, a delay. Um, the other issue is just, you know, the funding. We don't have uh, the funding uh, to add enough immigration judges to really make a dent in these really backlogged dockets. Uh, immigration judges themselves will say part of this is the complexity of the law has developed um, over the years, and these cases take longer. Um, you know, more people are seeking asylum with very complicated claims that take a good amount of time to adjudicate, you know, three or four hours on the record with testimony and opening and closing statements and direct and cross-examination. These are real cases in, in a very much court-like setting. Oh, my goodness. So what was that number again? 300, how many judges? So three. So they just appointed 11 new judges this past week. That was announced last Friday. So that brings us to 326 immigration judges, and they're spread between 58 immigration courts nationwide. Um, But those judges have (laughs) to work through almost 600,000 cases, more than half a million cases for just those 326 judges. Wow. So 326 judges, half a million cases, 
Do they are there other types of cases that are heard in immigration court? Yeah, there are. So we've been talking about asylum, so for people who are afraid to return to their home country. But in immigration court, you're really going to see anybody who uh, is undocumented here in the U.S., so people who don't have any legal status, um, and they have other claims for protection. It might be asylum. They might be eligible for some other things called cancellation or removal or other forms of relief. Um, Or you may also be seeing people who are lawful permanent residents. We usually refer to them as green card holders. Um, and they may have violated the terms, essentially, of being a green card holder, a lawful permanent resident, um, and perhaps committed a crime that renders them deportable. So they put them into removal proceedings as well. So but, it's a whole range of people that you're seeing uh, in immigration court, from somebody who just has no papers, has been here for you know any number of years, um, but has no basis to remain, to people who have been here lawfully, um, but perhaps um, committed a crime or been charged and convicted of a crime. Uh, and then asylum seekers, too. So are these separate from the asylum cases, or are these in addition to the asylum cases? That's in addition. So the backlog is oh 600,000 cases, includes all of those different folks in there. Wow. And only 326 judges. Uh, I'm curious. I, I don't know that the, the U.S. government would ever do this, but it would a possible so it wouldn't be you know a long term solution by any means but obviously there are pro bono attorneys can there be such a thing as a pro bono judge that can oversee some of these cases uh, so we have sometimes brought back in retired immigration judges to try and deal with the backlog but this backlog is worse than it has ever been so it's probably going to take more than that and one of the frightening things is that close to 40% of the current judges of the 326 judges we're talking about are actually eligible for retirement. Oh, no. Uh, so at any point, those guys and those you know civil servants who've been serving for some time um, could decide to take retirement, and then we're going to need to replace them you know, as quickly as possible. But again, the hiring seems to take quite a long time. Oh, my goodness. So, okay, so it's not just a problem with uh, insufficient judges, but now, what about the asylum officers who are working in, in these detention centers and conducting these credible fear interviews? Do we have enough of those, or are we, is there, you know, are we still missing out on a number of those as well? Well, yeah, we have about 500. I think in February there are 527 asylum officers, and they work in eight different um, asylum offices nationwide. So they're a little bit more spread out, but there are more of them. Um, and we have actually been authorized to hire as many as 625. But again, the hiring and training of these officers to actually get them on board and, and hearing, you know, conducting interviews takes some time. Um, and the, the huge numbers we saw of credible fear interviews at the border, which was, you know, over 60,000 last year, means that people are being diverted from their ordinary work and going down to the border to conduct these other types of interviews, these credible fear interviews. Um, so that, that creates a backlog. So you're seeing in asylum offices like the Los Angeles Asylum Office, for example, from the time that you file asylum to the time you get your interview to determine whether you're eligible, uh, it's almost five years. Oh, my goodness. So, oh, okay, you, you've talked to us a, a little bit about why this whole system and this process seems so inefficient. So now, what are some ideas that you have for fixing this? How can we improve this, maybe save some money, get these cases through a little faster? 
Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, one of them would be increasing access to counsel. So there's a few reasons to increase access to counsel. Uh, one of them, from the immigrant's perspective, being, of course, that levels of relief being granted are much, much higher if you have representation. This is a really convoluted and complex system, and so having somebody who understands that to walk you through it is really important. Uh, there was one study from... Uh, an entity within Syracuse University that found that kids in immigration court are 17 times more likely um, to succeed, basically, with an attorney. So 17 times more likely that you would be, be granted relief. Um, so that, that's one advantage to access to counsel. But the other advantage is when you have lawyers working on these cases, they're effectively screening them for the judges and working through the legal issues, negotiating with their opposing counsel from the government, um, and so there's some efficiencies that can be gained from additional representation of people rather than individuals going into court who don't speak English, who, um, you know, are trying to advocate on their own behalf, but half that really don't understand the system. So judges have to spend a lot more time figuring out, like, what is the story here? Does this person have any claims for relief? Um, if we can push that to the attorneys, there would be some efficiencies in the system. Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Matt Townsend is is at the doctor today. I, I've got a doctor's appointment today. And one thing that I've always noticed is how silly it seems to me that I, I arrive, I fill out all these documents, and then I'm I'm in front of a nurse. And the nurse asks me all these questions that I've a- already answered on the papers. And then the doctor comes in, and he asks me all those same questions that the nurse asked me <laughs> and that were on all the forms. And one of the ideas that, that I noticed that you put here in your article is that, uh, you know, um, we shouldn't be asking asylum seekers to present their cases before both asylum officers and judges. And I'm, I'm just curious to know, how much time could that save if we were to just have the asylum officers do that? And how much money would that save? Yeah, so just to clarify, I mean, asylum officers do grant asylum every day. They have the power to do that um, with the people who come in and are here legally and, and file for themselves. Um, or, you know, are within the, our country's borders and they file for asylum, asylum officers every day will adjudicate those claims and grant asylum. Um, if they don't feel like the person deserves asylum, then the person gets sent to immigration court. Um, but with the credible theory interviews, that's where you're essentially um, telling your story to an asylum officer and then having to wait several years again to tell it before a judge. Um, asylum officers are trained to grant asylum, so my thinking is if they come across somebody in a credible fear interview and they spend two hours with the person and they fill out the case and it seems like a really strong case and they know that if that person was back in their home office, right, in um, you know Miami or Virginia or New York or wherever they came from where they conduct their regular asylum interviews, they're called affirmative asylum interviews, if, if that person meets that standard, then they should be able to just go ahead and grant asylum rather than making them go through this whole process and wait for, you know, however many years to see a judge. That's quite duplicative. Um, and it does seem like that could, uh, certainly if we had done that uh, with uh, all of the strong cases, I don't know how many of them asylum officers would have felt comfortable granting, but we could certainly see, you know, potentially more than 100,000 less cases in the immigration court backlog um, at this stage. And wow. I don't know how the financial resources would work out. Yeah. You know, Lindsay, one thing we haven't talked about in in this interview is what, you know, let's say I'm an illegal immigrant. uh, What sort of rights do I have? So 
I would prefer to use the terminology undocumented just because I think calling a human being illegal is hard, right? Um, they, vi- they have violated our civil laws, our immigration laws by being here without documentation. Um, so, yeah, somebody undocumented, um, you know, does have certain rights. They do have the right to go before an immigration judge if they're removed. Um, there is this process called expedited removal, which the Trump administration is very interested in expanding. Um, right now, it, it typically operates as if you've only been here less than two weeks and you're within 100 miles of our border, then we can very quickly deport you unless you have a fear of return to your home country. So unless you have a fear of persecution, of torture, then you would get your credible fear interview and go through that whole process. But if you don't, then typically you can be moved, removed very fast. Um, now, the current administration have talked about expanding expedited removal to people who have been um, in the country for two years or less, um, and so that you know, and anywhere in the country, so not within a hundred miles of the border. Um, so that would that would really subject most of those a lot more people to expedited removal, and they wouldn't necessarily have that chance to go before a judge unless they have a fear of return and a potential asylum claim. But typically, if you've been here, um, you know, more than two years, certainly, then you have the right to go before an immigration judge and to assert any defenses you have to your, your removal from the country. Lindsay, just in closing, is there anything that the average citizen can do, whether it's just helping those who are undocumented immigrants or refugees? Obviously, there are you know, all sorts of donations that we can make, but what, what can just the everyday citizen do to just become more educated or to help out? Yeah, I think it's really great to to educate yourself um, and also to help out. A lot of people seeking asylum, you know, are torture survivors with very compelling stories and claims, um, and they have a hard time integrating into life in the U.S., partially because we don't let them work <laughs> until after six months after they've filed their asylum application. So, But we also don't give them any financial benefits or housing. Um, so often asylum seekers are really struggling um, so I'm on the board of a new nonprofit in the D.C. metro area that we started to try and help people in that situation. So people who are going through the project, um, and it's called ASAP, ASAP. It's the Asylum Seeker Assistance, Assistance Project. Um, and so we are, we are trying to engage with these individuals uh, while they're going through the process, help them find a place to learn English if they need to. Um, some of them are coming as doctors, lawyers, engineers, help them figure out a path to, you know, actually practicing their profession or something somewhat close to it while they're here in the U.S. Um, so, And we're always looking for volunteers and mentors in various fields uh, for those individuals. So you could find out more by um, checking out our website, which is asapprojectdc.org. Uh, but there's lots of other organizations. Uh, the U.N. High Commission for Refugee um, has a wonderful website with a lot of great graphics and ways to kind of educate yourselves. And more than just listening or reading, you can actually look at who is a refugee, where are they coming from, where are they going, um, what is our country doing about it uh, compared to the rest of the world. So I think educating yourselves on, on who, what is a refugee, how does that um, differ from undocumented immigrants in general, uh, can certainly be be helpful in raising awareness, especially because we've just seen um, some some hostility towards uh, refugees in the current uh, political climate in recent months. 
Well, Lindsay, we really appreciate your insight on this topic. It's very complex, and but very important nonetheless. And thank you also for the ideas of, of what we can do to help. That's really important. You know, it's one thing to just sit here and listen to this interview and, and find it interesting, but it's it's another thing to actually have a takeaway from this and, and be able to go away and, and make a difference. So again, thank you so much. Her name is Lindsay M. Harris, and she is an assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and she's been talking to us more about immigration, the immigration court system. We really appreciate her time here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will continue the discussion. <laughs> 